The home video update is sponsored by you. Yes, you. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash home video update to join as a patron to unlock exclusive membership benefits. Thank you for supporting the home video update. Hi guys, um, it's Mike. This is the Home Video Update episode two, um, the official episode two. We are video for this one. I've suddenly, suddenly gone a bit dark on my end, which is a bit annoying. Not really paying attention to what I look like, which is fine. Um, we have a guest for this episode, which is fantastic. We have Spencer, aka Downfall Idealistic Crusade on Twitter and Captain Solo on various forums. Is that correct? It's Captain Solo yes. on a few, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um... So I guess I'll do my little hello there. Um, yeah, Captain Solo on forums, uh, just because that's the handle I always use. And then uh, Damnful Idealistic Crusader on Twitter and YouTube, where I post all kinds of ultra nerdiness about transfers and disc reviews and all the stuff that floats around in my head that I, I, I can't use in daily life because it's like I'm speaking a foreign language. <laughs> but this is why you're here. This is why yes, you're absolutely. because we speak the same language and we have been speaking yes. the same language for a very long time today before we started this podcast yeah. because we started chatting and then we digressed a thousand times because that's what we do apparently it's the um, pre-show it is the pre-show i should yeah. record the pre-show we could have been like a cool extra but i didn't record it this time because we've had some technical errors and a few other bits but we are up and running and we are ready to go yep. so we're going to start with the normal format that i do which is what have we been watching because it's two of us now instead of one of us um so I'm going to throw it over to you first because okay. mine's going to lead into what our main topic is, which we've already discussed a little bit. So I'm going to lead into Spencer's What Have You Been Watching? Okay. Uh, I pulled a couple things because, uh, of course, I always want to watch so much and I plan to watch so much, but then real life and time creeps in. So um, I have been making my way through the beautiful Indicator Columbia Noir 5 bogart set and of course being a giant bogart nerd this has been like the greatest announcement anybody's made in a long time and i'm a giant indicator fanboy anyway but um these are all the more obscure less discussed uh, vehicles bogart did at columbia mostly for his uh independent santana pictures corporation uh where he like a lot of stars at the time and when the studio system was starting to erode uh was trying to become an independent producer didn't exactly work out and he was also doing other films in between these so these are some of the films he did in between the more iconic films like the Kane mutiny and the african queen but they are extremely rewarding for for the performances they they have a, a greater much more of a noir sensibility because several of them are noirs uh but it's got some some of my favorites including the really lesser regarded titles like tokyo joe which for some reason i've always loved um it and sirocco always get labeled as like casablanca knockoffs which is i mean there's a little bit of that but they're not really uh hey, but Bob Wyatt is a casablanca knockoff you can yeah you can exactly any, you know, yeah sirocco is much more trying to do the third man anyway and it's mm. it's really gritty oh, yeah. it, it, the, the script doesn't quite work but uh the it's 
they're they're really interesting but it's also got one of the films that the company produced that doesn't star bogart which is very obscure and i had never gotten to see before and it's got a, a beautiful blu-ray presentation from indicator stuffed to the gills with extras as always and it's got a lot of the fascinating world war ii uh propaganda documentaries that a lot of the individuals associated with the with the films the producers writers directors stars um did so indicator went and sought out hey you know uh, this is what Stuart heisler did uh and it's got some of the most famous and important of the propaganda shorts which is not something every label is going to do i mean the, the, yeah. this really has a, a great part of the history of that particular time period for for all the individuals involved but the inclusion of uh family secret which is does not star bogart was really huge and on top of that uh this has the new sony 4k restoration of bogart's final film the harder they fall which is one of the great boxing films i I mean that just just re-watching it it's like oh my god i forgot just how angry this was it's mark robeson um and it's influenced so much like that it's one of the key films like you see the the fight sequences and you're like oh god this is raging bull like it's just no like it's it's totally raging bull um yes day of the fight and killer's kiss obviously were were influences but you see the heart of they fall i mean that's that those sequences and um there's even parts of the heart of they fall that i swear feel like the godfather like especially when they go to Vegas and they have yeah. the meeting and Bogart's character is like, no, we're not going to uh, um, treat the fighters this way. And the guy he's arguing with has really big glasses. So I'm like, oh, my God, it's Mo Green and the Godfather. Oh, no, <laughs> it's totally it's totally the Godfather. Um, and and of course, it being Bogart's final film, it, it's got huge importance for yeah, um, yeah. for for um, for his performance. And he's unbelievable in the film. And then you later find out he was already suffering terribly uh, from from the cancer that would ultimately kill him the next year. It's just astounding. And he goes toe to toe with Rod Steiger when yeah, and it's yeah. and Steiger is going full tilt, completely different style of acting. And it's it's an incredible film. Again, it's one of the great boxing films, and it looks beautiful. Um, it, it's so good that you know you could just put it on a UHD, and uh, you know it, that that would be the only way to improve it. But yeah, it's it's an incredible box, and that of course incredible and indicator. It just it's sort of you know it's yeah. it's their thing. It's it's why it's why I love them so much, and the effort they put in. I'm I'm going to do a big review on it, like like I do for things. But man, it's I, I have been awaiting it all year and it was so exciting to to finally dive into it so I, mean, that's... I can't wait to see like you know that review because like, you probably go into it because you are into those things more than i am and i've seen most of the things in that box set but not as much as you would know them but it's that's what i like about indicator as a label we talked about boutique labels in the pre-show quite a bit but it's like i'm a real basic bitch for things like that and that most of my indicator titles are things like christine or ten rings in place um and wolf and things like this because i am that blockbustery mainstream thing but they do flip between you know the fact that they've put out ghosts of mars you know yeah and then they do that amazing you know, Columbia noir series and things like that that's a really crazy thing to flip between and and they know that you know obviously you have to do things that are going to sell hmm. but what i love that they do they don't just do that as an obvious cash grab yeah. like some people do where it's like okay 
it may be the same master that somebody else put out in another country, but they're going to take the time to make sure it's properly encoded. And hey, here's all the extras we could put together. And hey, we were able to do additional extras too. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a bigger, a much better known title or more obscure titles. You know, it, they put the effort in and you you literally you get it in your hands and you can just feel that, you know, yeah. this yeah. was made with with love and attention and care. Yeah. And um, it, it's it's right there. And then you put the yeah. disc in and you're just like, oh, my gosh, even if like some of these, it's an older uh, studio HD master and obviously yes. not yeah. a new scan because uh, some of these it's the same Sony HD master that was on the DVD. But. It, it looks so much better because, you know, it's obviously 1080p, but it's beautifully encoded and presented. Yes. So it is an enormous upgrade, even though it's not a new scan. Yeah. So that's that's what I've been spending most of my time recently. But to go through a few others real quick, because I've, I've always if I can spotlight stuff, I try to. Um, I got to look at one of what I think is one of the most important Kino releases they've ever done just saying a lot because this film yes. is very obscure, but it is a newer scan and it's a title to say, I never thought this would get a Blu-ray is like an understatement, but uh, it's the 1933 James whale directed the kiss before the mirror, oh, a beautiful yeah. pre-code film it is very European mindset. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, it's not necessarily going to play well with all audiences, but it's full of his whimsical dark humor. I mean, the story itself is very European, uh, essentially yeah. the, 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 the gag of the story for the people who aren't aware is uh, there, there is a, a, a murder that's committed because uh, the, the wife is having an affair and, and the husband and the sort of classical uh, idea of older social times totally loses it, kills her. And then his best friend is the lawyer who's going to defend him. Yeah. And then the lawyer starts recognizing things in his own house that remind him of, of what, it, what, what he's being told. And of course he discovers that his own wife is having an affair. Yeah. And then as he decides, he's going to defend his friend and argue that it was, you know, a, the, the crime of passion. Um, he's plotting to do the same. Yeah, to the same his thing, yeah. So, but it, it, it plays it relatively straight, but it's the inherent, very macabre morbid humor that is yeah. just scathing and hysterical very james whale and it's got a lot of his flourishes the opening is is a, is a beautiful house filled with flowers and the camera prowls through the walls and it was when he was at universal and was basically uh a, at his full auteur status because he had the oh, support yeah. of the limleys i mean i don't think anybody in the world defines the term auteur if you want to use that than James Whale before Universal changed hands. So basically going up yeah. to um, Showboat. Yeah. We had but Carl this... Blanche then because he made yes. some money. And he, he yeah. was like, you make us money and you give us respect. So we give yeah. you what you want. That's and what plus it, this actually has one or two of the Frankenstein sets in there, but they're totally oh, changed cool. around. But it gives it this incredible atmosphere. But uh, it's an incredible film because it also gets into the human condition because yeah. you have these characters and it, they're also reacting against and um, working with what society has ingrained in them to do. And yes. it's can yes. they can they get past that? So there's an incredible emotional context there, too. And there's also other characters, side characters that are really fascinating, uh, particularly one who 
the the way that uh, the character is written and and sort of um, and sort of played suggests very much to most people who see this today that it is a um, that it is a, a, a lesbian character in a yeah. 1933 film unapologetically and kind of actually in all ways much wiser than the other seemingly much sillier people uh, around her and it's like most pre-code films full of little things like that that make it feel much more alive and vibrant and it's a beautiful new it's credited as a 2k scan uh it 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 looks incredible i'd only seen this once before in a really craptastic version which unfortunately is how most whale films outside the horror films were stuck uh the commentary is pretty good by alexander helen nicholas you know it's it's a good commentary where she's actually seen the film and is actually doing analysis and whether you agree with everything she says or not it's like yes i can connect to what you're saying and this is you know it's a real commentary so um it it was beautiful to get this and uh, it's part of their universal deal so i just hope that more whale titles are are forthcoming one of which i will talk about in in one of our upcoming i had no idea that came out actually because yeah it's it, like, Volcano does so much yeah, yeah it and i had been meaning to i'm gonna do a review it, it had just been in my in my stack you know yeah. <laughs> just never ending stuff i'm like oh crap i haven't opened this yet uh and put it in but yeah it was i think it was li- yeah late 2020 so uh but it's so easy to miss kino stuff because they do like 10 discs a minute it feels like um oh they announce 50 discs a minute and then yeah they they announce 50 discs a minute they bring out 35 or 40 and you know um and then to go to these others real fast uh, i'm trying to see more and more and more of any of the classic film serials that i can get into uh and trying to get the best editions is really difficult because some like there's there's a couple i have and have watched that are vhs exclusive in terms of getting the official studio release, some yeah. got laser discs, some have gotten DVD, but most of the DVDs are crappy. And then there's different releases. Some are gray market, some are on YouTube and that's the only good version. It's, it's all over the place, but I got really lucky. This is not the fancier DVD. It's the first one, but it's the uh, very rare VCI DVD for the classic Buck Rogers serial. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. So this, if you want the the uh, classic serial which you should uh you have to get the vci version uh this is the first one it's an early dvd it's actually a flipper so you got the first six chapters on one side the others are on the flipper side then they later reissued it as just a standard dvd but it's the same uh eventually they did a two disc dvd that's supposed to be slightly cleaned up but i don't know i'm pretty sure it's probably just and it has like a a, a tiny little extra or two uh this is using a a reissue print so this has you know jumps freeze frames bad splices all the kind of nasty stuff and um uh revised titles because it literally doesn't have universal on it it was a i think it's from like a 60s reissue print uh or maybe 70s because they put it out post star wars um so you know obviously the quality is what it is but it's actually still very watchable it's a little dark but that kind of adds to the charm that it survived you know yeah the serial Um, should be like that because you weren't guaranteed a pristine print i mean i yeah. we're talking earlier about 35 millimeter prints and it's like i can remember seeing the matrix revolutions like the third matrix film the day it came out and it had print damage 
because it came to the UK a little bit later or it had been run before it to death. I don't know what it was about it. But or the projectionist was new and yeah, threaded, threaded it wrong. wrong. Yeah, and it's like that's part of the analog nature of what you watch. And mm-hmm. I think as pristine as those things get, we talked a little bit about like video nasties and like horror movies and things. My big Evil Dead fandom. It's like watching Evil Dead on a Betamax tape that had been chewed up and rented about 50 million times. That's how half of those things should look in a way. And when these kick in and pristine, perfect 4K masters, they lose that gritty nastiness. And I think some of those serials benefit from splices and cigarette burns and jumps and little pops and cracks on the audio because it's authentic. Yeah, it it is. And it shows you the history they've had because this is literally from a print that's a reissue of a reissue of a reissue. (laughs) And and of course, you didn't at the time get the chance to watch all the chapters together, which you really shouldn't because then it gets really old really fast. And you see the 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 warts and everything. And of course, this and so many others need 4K scans badly because, you know, they, they need proper restoration. They just haven't gotten it. It's such a niche thing. But uh, to say this influenced Star Wars, oh my God, that doesn't even begin. Yeah. Um, and it is pretty much, uh, they did three Flash Gordon serials and they did this one in between the second and third because they, they didn't, I guess they didn't want to pay for the license again for, yeah. for Flash at the time. So this is basically another Flash Gordon serial, but it's Buck Rogers instead because you have Buster Crab playing the hero role. You have some of the same people appear. It is seemingly slightly a lower budget but it's also completely different set design and and uh, art direction so it is does have its own distinct identity mm-hmm. it's a heck of a lot of fun uh one of the co-directors was uh ford beeb i think is how you pronounce his name uh, he did the second and third flash serial so it moves with good energy which is yeah. really important for a serial because the bad ones or the the not so good ones they really drag and they're repetitive um so the, the cliffhangers here are pretty good but it does have some really hysterically bad cheats in it <laughs> there there's one where they're in um it's the actual rocket car from the the second flash serial and they're going and somebody gets closing the gates and you see the car going to it and they're going to hit and they can't jump out and the the cliffhanger is it actually does impact and there's an explosion right. and yeah. you're like what did they do? You know, and of course the 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 resolution is 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 you know hysterically a, a bit of a cheat, but it's 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 okay. It's not yeah. um, uncommon. But the really bad one is uh, end of chapter nine. The sidekick is uh, trying to escape, and the villain shoots him in the back, and that's the end. And you're like, whoa! And then of course chapter ten comes up and <laughs> gets to that bit after the little recap, and it gets to that bit. But instead of getting shot, he just dives out the window and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is one of the most blatant sheets I've seen in a serial yet. And that's part of the charm, because sometimes they couldn't figure out how to write themselves out of that situation. Um, And things like this became part of film culture, the whole notion of a recap. And some um, have there's a bit of it in this where one of the episodes towards the end, usually the penultimate one, if it was a Republic serial is literally a recap of the first 10 or so episodes. So it's sort of the birth of the recap, which is really interesting. So um, it's a, it's a wonderful serial. uh, Hugely.
you there? Yeah, we're back. Yeah, we're back. yeah, right, I can, I can see yeah, you that moving now. Weird. Yeah, that went a bit weird. Sorry. <laughs> All right, there, it's, it's, it's part of the it fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so basically, I was just, just going to finish by saying the the influence on, on Star Wars from both the Flash serials and the Buck Rogers serials. I mean, uh, there's a lot of Empire Strikes Back in this. I think you have the Hidden City. It starts in the snow. Um, the 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 Fortress of Killer Kane reminds me of Cloud City. It's not in the clouds, but the actual layout, and they're really high up. Um, so th- there's there's quite a bit of Empire, and this has the scrolling text. This was the first. Uh, the third Flash has it, which is where I thought it came from, but this actually had it first. So, and it's literally the exact same yeah, scrolling yeah, yeah. text, and I'm like, oh my gosh! Um, so it's it's a must. It's so much fun, but you know you have to convince people to get into serials. Um, and then really quick, uh, last one I'll I'll spotlight an LD. Uh, I've been wanting to revisit this, and gosh, this oh, is a blast. Down. Oh. Yeah, you're frozen on my end. Technical difficulties, please stand by. (laughs) Oh, it doesn't like us today. Yeah, oh, we're back. Oh, we're back. Oh, we're back. Okay. That's so weird. <laughs> I'm gonna have to do so much editing on this. It's unbelievable. I don't know what's going on. I it just seems to be playing up a little bit. It it just doesn't like us today, I guess. Oh, I, but weirdly, <laughs> we talked for like an hour and a bit before we went live. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, like, live and it's like there's no rhyme or reason. No. Plus, we're. I think it's it's especially harder on different time zones. Oh yeah, yeah. I, oh gosh, yeah. I remember some of the things I did with uh, with Dice K because he's a completely different time zone that that seems to wreak havoc with um, internet calls. So real quick, uh, just yeah. spotlight this. Uh, I've seen this a long time ago. Wanting to revisit it, it is such a blast. So I watched the ex Mrs. Bradford on okay. the image RKO classic LD um, the Warner archive has done an MOD DVD of this. And I'm, I think it is probably this same master because most of those are, but they may have cleaned it up a little. This uh, is William Powell and Gene Arthur. It is totally RKO doing a riff on the classic thin man. Yeah. This is before they came out with the first sequel, but he's paired with Gene Arthur and it's got a different flavor of its own. It, it, it is definitely riffing on the thin man but it does enough to feel like a different film yeah uh the the pairing between the two i adore both of course and uh they spark off each other wonderfully so even though it's not myrna loy um gene arthur is just beaming 
in this film. She's yeah. having a blast and she plays off Powell beautifully. And the, the, the gag of the film setup is really fun because they're not a married couple like the thin man. They're a divorced couple. Oh, right. <laughs> she shows up at the beginning and is like, okay, um, you haven't paid me my alimony yet. So I'm moving back in. Uh, and of course it, it's very obvious. They should have never gotten divorced in yeah. the first place. Sort of an awful truth type deal. Uh, but she's a mystery writer obsessed with crimes and murder. He's a surgeon who just wants to do his job. And come yeah. home at night and not be bothered with this murder nonsense. And of course, in like two seconds, they get dragged into this thing and he's being shot at and their corpse is piling up. The police thinks he's murdered people. And it's just like, oh, why did you ever come back into my life? My life is hell now. Uh, but of course, he gets into it much like Nick Charles would in, in The Thin yeah, Man's. Yeah. But it's got a flavor of its own. It moves with a really good pace. And the actual murder plot, the actual um, um, the method of which the victims are killed because the corpses turn up and the bodies are, you know, th they have no marks on them and nobody can figure out how they died. And it's tied into the racing circuit. So it's literally, okay. you know, uh, there, there's a horse race. The uh, the favorite loses and the jockey falls off the horse dead and nobody knows how he died. And then so there's some crookedness going on yeah, as well yeah. so the, the the plot is it is quite dense there is a real a really good mystery in there but the actual method of of the way the people are killed is quite ingenious if a little improbable it's not something you're just going to magically think of because it is somebody had to sit down and actually yeah. come up with a good gag um and also the method of which the criminal is exposed is a little unique because the powell character has a, an actual screening set up in his new york apartment like the the picture goes down and there's a projector oh, wow. and yeah. Um, so that and that's set up. So at the end, when they do get everybody together, it's like, I'm going to reveal who the killer is. He actually has footage of them from that morning. So he had gotten newsreel cameramen. And it's like, yeah, I've not seen that in a 1930s yeah. film. So it's got little bits like that that are really inventive. So it's one of a handful of films that other people tried to do to try and do their own thin man. Uh, it's a shame they did do another one of these and make it a little serious. Cause even yeah. though it is very much thin man in its DNA, it's got enough of its own energy. And uh, again, I adore Jean Arthur and everything. So seeing yeah. her in a movie like this, where she gets to cut loose a little bit and the bodies just start piling up so much fun uh this is a direct print transfer so it's got some q dots and things but it's actually a, a really good transfer for image which is saying something because uh, yeah. even their rko disc can vary in quality wildly uh the sound is pretty good too but it's got a couple places where there are some pops and uh one or two bits of missing frames because it's a a print transfer from from the early 90s but that has a certain feel to it. So it's yeah. like you got to go to a, a rep theater and see a, a print of this, which would be a rare thing. Cause I, I don't know if I've ever seen this screen somewhere. Um, this is a title. I hope Warner archive does on Blu-ray. It's a glorious, fun, uh, brisk. Uh, yeah, it's 80 minutes. I mean, it is very brisk. And even though it's, it's 36, it has the feel of, of pre-code still. So um, yeah, even yeah. though it's it's in the code era, it has some of that energy. So uh, I had an absolute blast revisiting it. See, this this is the thing. It's like I learned so much about films that I've heard of or seen transgenderly, uh, like 
um, through like TV or something where like the weirdness of UK TV and the yesterday um, the searchers was on one channel for the 50,000th time because the searchers is it's a Sunday thing. It was always a Sunday thing. It was war mm. movies or Westerns in the UK. It was always on a Sunday. But on Saturday afternoon, Witness for the Prosecution was on the same channel. And it's like, you don't see that that often. It's not really something yeah. that gets talked about much. But then they had, you know, a very censored version of um, Tomorrow Never Dies on two days before on a different channel. And it's like the, the weirdness of these things that you don't see all these things that are that publicized there are lots of movies that fall by the wayside and i'm mm -hmm. not one of these people that thinks sees howard the duck being announced for uhd and go well why this when this doesn't come out it's like everything's valid in its own way yeah and you should have the best version of something come out and i get that but i was flicking through i mean we were talking before about the fact that i've got hard drives and i said in podcast for hard drives for the things that you can't get anymore or there are versions of something or a old TV stream or something I've ripped from something else. A and... documentary from somewhere yeah. that's never yeah. been released because there's yeah, rights exactly. issues for licensing. Yeah. yeah. It's like Dangerous Days, the making of Blade Runner that um, I always butcher his last name, Charles Lacrazula. That... Isn't I it? I, 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 it's uh, De La Zurica, I believe. De La Zurica, I thank hope you. I'm pronouncing no, it correctly. No, it's better than, I, better than I'm doing it. So, I, I mean, follow him uh, on Twitter. It's amazing I can do that. I've DM'd him a couple of times, you know, and we've had a few chats about some stuff, but it's like, he is, he's a really good guy. And he knows movies back to front and the passions there, but also Mark Camode, the film critic did one called on the edge of Blade Runner. Yes. Which the only version of that is a really bad VHS rip, which is on YouTube. And every yes. time I talk to him about it, he links <laughs> me to that. And I'm like, no, you can get the master because like fear of God, the, um, the Exodus documentary that he did, which was really cut down the laser disc a little bit longer on the DVD. And the full uncut version, when it's about two and a half hours or something, finally went on BBC iPlayer, their streaming service, which is amazing. But these things get lost, so I try and yes. preserve them. And I was thinking through, I mean, my wife been watching is going to be really, compared to the stuff that you've been watching, is very, everything's valid in its own little way. And I had a, there's a, you can see a theme in what I've watched like in the last couple of days, because I've had a bit of a Jones for like 90 stuff. But it's like, I was thinking through my Shield um nvidia show tv player which i stream all this stuff well watch off the hard drive it's things like um the rachel papers with dexter fletcher and only sky which is i think it's michael amos uh book um is an amazing film that is only available on one mgm dvd and that's it mm -hmm. and it's like well why isn't this actually quite important to me and quite a well reviewed and renowned movie not available on blu-ray or hd anywhere and there are lots of films that are trapped in this thing so you think of something like like that where it is yeah you're stuck on an mod title you're stuck on a laser disc or something like this it's like watching um the Wolfpack. um the last one you're on they had i can't remember who had it but someone had a co japanese copy of slipstream mm -hmm. the um probably ryan <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've got that copy of Slipstream because I love Slipstream. I've got a 35 millimeter trailer that's been scanned. Um, I've got, you know, a DVD of it that's like a crap um, um, NTSC laser transfer that's just four by three and pan scanned and terrible. Um, but this is the only widescreen version. It's not the correct ratio. It's zoomed in. It's got a weird yellow, like, um, Spectre style piss filter over it. It just looks horrible. But 
it's the own it's the best there is and if i want to yeah. watch slipstream like when bill paxton died i put the latest on i watch slipstream and it's the only way i can watch it so yeah to think that these things i mean it is public domain that movie so anyone could put it out and mark hamill finally after i've been tweeting him about it for years someone tweeted him about hey remember slipstream and he replied and it's like Yes, they do, because I wanted to come out when Tron Legacy came out, because Lisberger directed it, and he directed Tron, Gary Kurtz with Star Wars. You look at um, Bill Paxton had just died as well, and Mark Hamill coming back for certain things. It's like it was you would think the, 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 the t- yeah, the, the, the energy was there. Yeah, but someone it, paid for somebody it. didn't pick up on it or. Yeah. Obviously, people have limited budgets, but you know you, you gotta they they have to dig a little deeper. And also, if they don't think it's going to sell a lot, well, then if you actually them. promote the important yeah. reasons that people are probably not aware of because they probably never heard of it. It's the same thing with with the serials. If they put Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers out and promoted, hey. All this stuff in Star Wars, you know, yeah. this is where it comes trailer. from. Yeah, yeah, trailer exactly. With somebody you, knows how to cut a trailer. You yeah. got to put a little effort in yeah. to essentially translate for yeah. a modern audience. Hey, this is why this is important. A lot of stuff that you love came from this, and here's why. And it's important to preserve it. And you might want to check it out. You know, there has to be some sort of translation. Otherwise, it's obviously not going to go anywhere. And it's not, yeah. They're not going to make any money out of, of putting it out, which, yeah, that makes sense. But I, I hate when so many will just say, oh, well, th- this didn't sell well, so that's not going to work at all, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, well, yeah, but if you had advertised a bit better or yeah, at yeah. all, you know, that first one wouldn't would have done better. You know, if, if you don't translate it, then people or people just don't realize it's there. Well, I was looking for my latest earlier, weirdly. I don't know why. Um, I don't know what it was. I was watching um, Oliver Harper on YouTube did a latest update. Yeah. And he had the last released version of Batman 1989 in Japan. Now, I've got the original release of Batman. Perfect mint condition, OB strip, everything. Perfect, beautiful condition. And I didn't realize there's another, I think it was 98, 97 release. And I'm yeah, like, it's, it's oh, like getting, cool. yeah, I, I, it's probably, as far as my own sort of, headcanon reasoning i i think when they came out with the flipper dvds for the batmans i think that was because they were going to do like a final ac3 laser disc and then warner brothers pulled out of ld very early and so the last warner lds were image titles done sort of separately because uh there was a great interview that finally confirmed that for me it was um do you know the extras podcast they do stuff with uh, George Felton. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they had an interview with the guy who produced the Matrix DVD, the original okay. groundbreaking snapper case that we all have and love. And yeah. it's, it's a legend in home video, home video. But he he was talking about how they didn't even really consider the LD because that was a separate thing. And all the special features and things they were trying to do on the DVD, they couldn't do on LD. So no. the LD was sort of a afterthought and that was handled separately and it was put out by image and of yeah. course is is a huge collector's item now but that's how the mindset was so a lot of the early dvds were canceled lds so when i see oh it's 97 98 in japan didn't get a u.s release it's got ac3 on that i'm like that's got to be 
the same master that was prepped and then put yeah. out on that snapper case DVD. Cause that's just how this stuff usually works out. So the initial bond DVDs were all supposed to be a final THX LD box set like Goldfinger yeah. and Thunderball, but it got canceled. Um, so we got those THX final runs movie only, which then got the first snapper case DVDs that were the same transfer and are all rotted. Um, and then the special editions were those just with extras and heavy compression and all kinds of other yeah. doodads. But yeah, it is, that's, that's how it works. So it took a while to get away from that, but I'm, I'm thinking that's gotta be the um, snapper case DVD master. Quite possibly. I mean, I don't know if it is, if it's a competitive mask, I have to try and track it down. But my, my one's original, but I was looking at, I just started looking through, the rack so i was like oh mm-hmm. look at this and there were quite a few ones there's a copy of um fx murder by illusion that i've got which is a power release which clearly says on the back this has 500 titles that are going to be printed we will not be printing anymore wow. and there's um it could happen to you as well um the nick cage bridget fonda movie um where it's the same limited edition of 500 no more will be printed i've got a french version it german german version which says director's cut la femme nikita which is limited edition of 200, I think, or 300. Ooh. And it's just, it's, just it's talking random. about it's limited so numbers. Yeah, I know it's so random, but why not do through all these boutique labels? You know, I know that, you know, you look at someone like Indicator where, you know, a copy of Christine will outsell that Bogart box set like 30 to one because it's got yeah. the brand, you know, it's got Carpenter, it's got King, it's got the brand recognition. Mm-hmm. That's why they did things like ghosts of Mars and vampires and all these other things. And that's what you do. You do it's, it's the whole thing of doing like doing one for me and one for the, one for the studio, you know, yeah. and one, one for the, one for the bank. So, you know, if you look at like Nick Cage doing the rock and doing red, red rock, red rock West, if I can speak, you know, you do, you do something, you know, for the money and you do something for, you know, you do leave in Las Vegas at the same time you're doing, you know, Con Air, you know, you're winning an Oscar when you're putting the bunny back in the box. That's that's yeah. the weird thing of you taking one for the thing and doing. Um, I was watching um, a video about um, there's a series. I can't remember the name of the series. I'm really terrible for remembering these things where it's this French um, video shop where they rent DVDs and whatever else. And they get, yes. you've seen these? Oh, yeah, they're really good. The, the Terry Gilliam yeah. one is great. Yeah, yeah, they're brilliant. Yeah. It's like the Criterion Closet. It's like closet, the Criterion Closet that you want. Yeah, yeah. Where they exactly. just, they, they they really get into it. Because, yeah. yeah, Criterion Closet's cool. We all want to go there. There's no laser discs. Shove all the discs in the bag that you can't afford. And I'd be asking, where's their laser disc storage? Because yeah. because they have them. Because they'll, they'll set up pictures. But I'm like, I'm yeah. going to be the one nerd who's like, Ah oh, yes, I have come home. Um, but yeah, the that 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 series in that in that French store, and of course they're they're all DVDs. So then that makes you flashback yes. even further. Yeah, and yeah. and you're like, oh yeah, they're talking about this film. But I'm like, that's probably not a good release of it. Or man, that's a DVD yeah. master. Or you know, it's like okay, but um, yeah, that that is much more. You know, it's it's like okay, yeah, you can tell this is for the the real nerds. You know, it's like they they're really gonna again it's terry gilliam walking around in one of them and he's like oh this was great and i hated this movie but i still remember it and you should watch it even though it sucks and it really sucks but i love it it's it's like watching this was david leash and um brad pitt because they're promoting train so it's just like they're walking around and they're trying to get brad pitt to talk it starts off with david and then brad pitt sort of comes in halfway through almost like he wasn't expected which he might not have been yeah but it's like they're trying to make him talk about seven towards the end and all this other stuff but he's like or burn after reading, 
there's that. But they also mentioned Troy because David Leach um, was his stand-up on Troy and Fight Club and a few other bits. And that's how they knew each other to begin with. But you're talking about like doing the Coen Brothers things and then going to Troy. It's like you do one for the studio and one for yourself. And that's the whole thing of like you can fit between these things and do the sublimely stupid and the sublime at the same time. Yeah. And that's how these things should be working. So we should get something like maybe, you know, indicators should put out something like something Sony owned, you know, that they're not making money on Blade Runner 2049. You know, it didn't make a huge amount of money, but maybe five years from now, indicator will put out something that Sony own in the UK, a special box set of that or whatever else. And they can also put out Slipstream. You know, because yeah, why you, not? you bundle like, you bundle it in, even if yeah. you know the other one, you're probably going to take a little yeah. bit of a loss on bundle it in with yeah. something where you're going to have a, a really large profit margin because yeah. that'll cover it up. That's something studios used to do with their feature releases. You know, can't do that anymore. <laughs> no, all these DCPs can't, stuff, you can't think have about of, no. can't think about. Hey, you know, we can still make movies between five million and thirty million dollar budgets yeah. about yeah. people and you know bundle that in because we're going to make two billion dollars off the latest whatever that's the 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 summer gigantor release uh you know you you, you can finesse things in there yeah. you know uh if you take the time and you actually care uh, so yeah, it, it just takes it takes a little extra effort. It takes elbow grease. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the difference with it. Um, but getting into we've we've digressed for quite a bit on this, of course, before, before we even start going. And I don't, I quite like it. I talked for hours, but it's like I'm going to hammer through what I've been watching. I haven't got the lovely props that you have. They're all in a different room, or they're all digital, or whatever else. But it's like I've grouped them together into a theme because one, I want to talk to you about. Well, there's two that you can comment on quite. I one you might not know that I've watched recently, um, but the two that you could probably comment about more than most can. And then we'll get into our main one, which was one of the things I wanted to talk about. Um, but I went on a bit of a '90s kick, so I watched. I tried to watch Drop Zone today, and I got about halfway through it, which is the John Bad and Wesley Snipes yeah. movie. Which is, I got halfway through it because it's terrible. There's one is bit it? in it. I, I, I like have it. the I LD. I picked it. it up because it was cheap and it had AC3. Yeah. I just, I have so many discs of random things that I've gotten and I just, I've never, never gotten around to watching it. So I've, I've, I've thought about it and I need yeah. to, I need, there's so much I need to watch, but yeah, I'm like, I've, I've never seen it. So I don't I know. remember liking it. I really remember liking it, renting on VHS and liking it because it came out the same year as Terminal Velocity, which I mm -hmm. actually enjoyed a lot more. That's got a David Tui script, which I think, I thought when I started watching Drop Zone today that I'd want, John Badham directing that script because it's a decent script writer with a decent director and it would actually work better. Yeah. But Terminal Velocity is actually better directed. The action set pieces are better made. And there's a I, lot I more can see fun. That. Yeah. I think yeah. Charlie Sheen's got more charm than Wesley Snipes has, even at the height of Wesley Snipes' power. And there's Nick Nolte. It's a different energy. To... Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It's, um, it doesn't really, it's not Nick Nolte, it's Gary Busey. Sorry. Nick, Gary Busey, weirdly going from, the other skydiving movie, Point Break, where he yep. was a cop to being a bad guy skydiver in this. And I can't buy him in the shape that he was in being this badass skydiving. <laughs> bad it's a little bit of a stretch. It's really weird. But then you go to Terminal Velocity, because what I tend to do, and I'm terrible for this, and that I quite like going to the cinema to see things because there are no phones, there are no laptops, yep. there's no distractions, because 
with terminal velocity for example i get up i got up well, i will always film to get up imdb and i go to the trivia section and i look through and i'm like oh that's interesting like the original plot for terminal velocity was because it's these russian kgb agents oh god it's uh, the casting is so it's like james gandolfini and um uh christopher mcdonald and it's like with a with a blonde dye job as well it's like okay <laughs> as you do fine. yeah but it's it's so strange but they they're originally trying to steal gravity to win at sky Di- and i was trying to read this plot synopsis from this like abandoned version because that sounds like a debut to script that sounds like his jurassic past stuff or his riddick stuff and that sounds like you know below or something more sci-fi like he would have written originally but it's just this weird little 90s skydiving with a great 90s sound mix. I've got the AC3 Days disc as well somewhere. I watched, um, I don't know, I think it was an old transport stream or something with a 5.1 track. And it's it's well directed and the action's quite thrilling. And there's a few bits that are a bit, uh, but the stunt doubles work better than the half of Drop Zone that I watched already. Yeah, um, and it was made by real people and they actually yeah. had to go out there and do it. And it's stunts, on film. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a bit where they drop at the end where they drop a um, thing back to Uncharted that came out last year, which is they drop the car out the back of a plane. And it's like, they do that in this, they drop a Cadillac out the back of a plane. Natasha Henstridge is in the boot of the car, the trunk of the car. And Charlie Sheen is in the front of it with Chris McDonald trying to kill him on the windshield. It's like insanely done for the fact they did it for real um, with some bad, like green screen, like Charlie Sheen stuff. Of but course. The, the, bad oh, process work. Yeah. <laughs> but the script is quite funny. There's some good lines. Um, James Gandolfini is fantastic in it. This is not long after True Romance when I wouldn't have known they were the same person from his bit part in that, and obviously well mm-hmm. before The Sopranos. Um, but it was a fun little action film that I remember thinking was cheesy rubbish. And I went on about the Charlie Sheen because I also watched Navy Seals, which for having the cast of like aliens and you know and all these things and dennis haber are actually quite like um navy seals is just a bad 90s action movie that it barely held my attention there i can watch a lot of schlock rubbish 80s stuff or 90s stuff where it's not very well made and it's mm-hmm. a bad action movie. and i like the art of a bad action movie like the i like the art of a bad pop song you know there are some really really cheesy pop songs that I like because I admire the art of putting that together. And Navy SEALs doesn't work. And I remember, I also, well, going to the, I'm trying to roll things together. It's like Showdown Little Tokyo I watched as well. I remember watching that cut in the UK because of throwing stars and ninja weaponry, which you couldn't do in the 90s, um, obviously, because we're all going to go out and get nunchucks and start of beating course. each other to death with them because that's what we do. Um, but <laughs> I remember the weird homoerotic nature about it and this weird sort of thing between Brandon Lee and Dolph Lundgren. And I love Dolph Lundgren from back in the day, like seeing this film. And I remember Navy Seals and Showdown being these things we used to rent on VHS all the time being really cool because they were these 18 rated or R rated stuff that you would watch and think, oh, wow, it's so cool. That guy got his arm chopped off or the forbidden fruit. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, oh, my God, this is the height of action. And then you watch yes. the police story and you're like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, this is terrible. Brandon Lee, for as good as he was at martial arts, n- no, you know this. This was, it was a different league. When you start watching mm-hmm. like young you young you pin stuff and like all these things, where it's like Sam Hung and whatever else, you start watching these things and think, oh, 
Oh, that's the good stuff. This is this what influenced a lot yeah. of people and yeah. reinvigorated stuff. It's yeah. the same thing when you see something where the fight sequence or the action sequence matters because yes. it's intrinsic to the story yeah. and it's built up to doesn't have to have the best choreography in the world no, no. because you're invested in what's going on. Yeah. And then when you see things where you're not invested, that that's the thing. It has to hold your interest. So even if it's a, a bad movie, if it holds your interest and yes. people tried their best and the, just the material wasn't there, but it holds your interest. I guess I call it a sort of sigh factor. If you're watching something and the amount of times you're going, Oh God. Yeah. yeah uh, you know, yeah, that starts yeah. to, and then you, you just like, is this over yet? Uh, let me go on IMDb. I have to drown. I have to generate my own interest. Yes. That's when, yeah. that's when it doesn't work. Uh, whether you're seeing something belief, new or, or, or it's something terrible, whatever it yeah. is. The way you know something doesn't work is if you start thinking about other things, like you know, you know that shot's kind of out of focus over there. Yeah, you know? and then uh, that's an interesting sound pan back there. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's like you, you're me, just not invested. Yeah, what got me was like I did the exact same thing. It's like I can suspend disbelief. I can watch a Transformers movie knowing their shit, and I go in knowing their shit, and I can take my brain and put it on the seat next to me and go, "Oh, that's pretty." Because Michael Bay knows how to hold your attention for the most part. He's made some clunkers, but I agree with, I think it's in the last episode, I agree with Andy Hopkins, the guy's an auteur. He knows cameras and shots better than most people ever have in the history of making films because that's what he does. He knows how to do that. Yeah, I he mean, he, he, was, he came out of commercials and yeah, that, you yeah. have to know that. Same as the Scott brothers. He's that sort mm -hmm. of, he knows the visual way of telling a story because in those three minutes you have to tell or even three minutes, a minute and a half, you have to tell the story of why you should buy X thing. You know, it's like Fincher mm -hmm. doing Madonna's videos, like things like that. It's like he knows how to tell a story through three and a half minutes of express yourself because he had to be visual. And that's why his stuff works. And until you and, try it yourself, you don't understand how hard that is. Well, <laughs> even the, the simplest thing. things in the world. Even if it's you're like, just taking your phone and yeah. you you just tried it, it is the hardest thing in the world. It, it sounds simple, but until people actually yeah. try to do it themselves and experience the same hurdles and headaches, they, 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 they don't understand how difficult yeah. it really is. But showdown fell apart for me when I started noticing the score. Because okay. the score is really bad. It's really loud. It's really mm -hmm. badly mixed. And it's really in your face and it sort of covers over everything else and it's yeah i found out later that um the film was taken away from mark lester and recut he fell out favor warner brothers and they went this warner is not brothers in the yeah. 90s recutting yeah. things we'll come back to that later <laughs> oh um, yeah but he's he got it taken away from him i think he did it's an 89 minute movie and it was 115 18 minutes something like that so i had a mm -hmm. lot cut out um weirdly about the same as the other film we're going to talk about later um and it's it's really strange how these things happen, but he had a much darker story that told complete subplots are gone and missing. And it, it it falls apart because it had the score ripped out of it and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And the what they put in doesn't work. But going into talking about score and 90s sound mixing and 90s movies, I actually watched a film that I love that was... I wouldn't say I'm fairly maligned at the time. It wasn't loved at the time, which is The Ghost in the Darkness, which is... Yeah. I think I've been listening to a bit of Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino's podcast, the video archives podcast, and I don't like Tarantino like I did in the nineties. I think his output, since he's got 
a lot of no men taken away from like Gary Kurtz and things like that with George Lucas. Yep. And he hasn't got his editor anymore to save him because unfortunately she died. I think he's become fully, he loves the sound of his own voice. And I think it's, that it's the stick over everything else yeah. because, yes. uh, and I, I, again, I don't think he's a bad guy, but if you, nope. if you get me nope. started on Tarantino, oh man, um, I, I, he made one great picture. One Jackie Brown. It didn't oh, do very yes. well. No, it, it is didn't do film. very well. Yes, and then what does that. he do immediately? But dive headfirst into the shtick. And yes, yeah, there's some fun stuff in there. And yes, he shut it on film. And yes, he gets to do all this stuff for whatever reason because he had full support of Miramax when that was a thing. And you know, yeah. um, but it's like there's there's no substance there that's what always right. gets me and then i just i try to put it out of my mind i i you know i'm like i i, I don't really go in for that stuff so i i've seen some of his later things like people drag me like i saw inglorious bastards because somebody dragged me to it on opening night i'm just sitting there i'm like oh god he's yeah. doing he's doing like the opening of 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 gbu but it's not working why is this here what no oh god um but uh it's because i can sort of see behind the curtain because yeah, i know yeah. what he's pulling from so you could see the seams of things yes. and you know it's fine if you want to do that but you're supposed to work it in you're supposed to fold it in leone was a, a western geek he loved yeah. hollywood but he he was playing around with how the myth and reality clashed and that that's really the if he had a core theme you know, not that people sat there and go, this is my core theme. This is my thesis. But if he had a core theme, it was the clash between the myth and the reality. That's yeah. what Once Upon a Time in the West is. But even if you look at that, it's filled with references, but the references are there for a reason. And unless you're a Western geek, you're only going to recognize core themes of various Westerns. Yeah. But as a Western geek, you can now sit there and go, oh, God, he's pulling that from Vera Cruz. Oh, that's from Shane. Oh, this is John Ford country. Yeah. But look at what he's doing with it, and he's using the texture of it, but it's everything laid bare, and it's literally the Western dying in front of your eyes, and it's the death of all of the beautiful mythology, and it's just being laid bare and destroyed by the passage of time, as everything is, and you're just like – you just start weeping at the the the, the poetic nature of – of the passage of time and how everything is erased and forgotten in the, in the notion of progress. And you're like, Oh, this is so profound. It's not just, Hey, Oh, I love this. I'm going to riff on this. I'm going to riff on this. And again, fine. If you want to do that, but yeah, it just, it's always bothered me. And then as, as when I was growing up and finally saw reservoir dogs and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's not bad. You know, obviously they had a low budget and things. Okay. Then I'm seeing this other movie a couple of years later that I'd heard about, and I'd heard there was something about Reservoir Dogs, but I'd never really looked into it because you know, I didn't have access to Hong Kong films growing up. But I'm seeing this this film because I was really getting into John Woo and Chug and Fat. I'm seeing this film yeah. and I'm like, this is great, but man, this seems so familiar for some reason. And then yeah, Ringo Lamb's made a film that's quite similar to, you know, it's, it's, I'm it's halfway crazy. through City on Fire yeah. and I'm like, wait a minute. And then I, I, I was like, oh, my God. He took the final act of City on Fire, yeah. took the first two acts off, took the character buildup off, kept some core things, which is fine if you wanted to do that. Just give the credit where credit is due. That's that's what gets me. So that's why I can't look at Reservoir Dogs anymore. I, I just can't. I'm just like, 
yeah, studios did this all the time in, in the classic era where they would regurgitate, recycle of things that, that they had already made themselves yes. or other people did, but it wasn't that blatant. And if they remade something, it's in the credits. If you read, uh, you know, uh, some movies were remade four or five times. There are three versions of the Maltese Falcon. Warner Brothers didn't get it right the first two times, but it's got Dashiell Hammett's credit, you know, yeah. there suggested by material. Um, so, you know, it's there if you want to dig for it. But yeah, that that just, ooh, that's just one of the most blatant things. And it's just like, come on. Th- but, he was stating, but that was the thing. It's like he was saying Stephen Hopkins because they, um, they did an episode, which is The Keep and The Relic. And mm-hmm. I love The Keep for its many, many flaws. Um, again, another film that was taken down and recut and everything else. Um, the Relic has some merit. I don't hate it. It's fine um i liked in the 90s it's fine now um but they said oh it should be someone more workman like directing it like stephen hopkins and i'm like stephen hopkins isn't workman like in my book i think mm. me and my brother especially really championed judgment night and predator 2 and life of death peter sellers which is an amazing film um and also the ghost in the darkness which many people didn't see when it came out which is no. another film that was again taken out of its director's hands and recut Taken out is, of the screenwriter's hands first. Yeah, that's the craziness of it. It was like, it was it was redone. Um, the producer couldn't find anyone to be cast in the role, so he cast himself in the role. Mm-hmm. So there's Michael Douglas all of a sudden halfway through the movie. Because Which, I mean, it makes sense, and he's great oh, yeah. in it, but it, oh, the, the tone changes. It doesn't work anymore. And I think that Val Kilmer, who has just come off Island Doc Moreau, who turned up literally off the set of that, after he was at his worst as a human being, I'd say, because you look at the quotes coming from Iron Dr. Moreau, which mm-hmm. is like Frankenheimer said that he wouldn't cast Val Kilmer in a Val Kilmer biopic because he just. And even, even Joel Schumacher, most polite man in the yeah. history of time, yeah. was just yeah. like, oh God, I can't. I can't. Val you know? Kilmer wasn't <laughs> a good guy. He was bad, but then. I think he realized what he was doing wrong. And then you got later resurgence of things like, I mean, you're saying about Westerns there. I think the Westerns need something new to say. I think that you come from things like, you know, the the very early stuff going through to like the John Ford era, then through to when, you know, you go through the spaghetti Western era where it was like, hey, we're not American. We didn't live that. We weren't looking to recapture that heroic nature. We weren't looking to do the John Wayne thing. We weren't looking to do all that. We wanted to do the grittiness. And that's what really what got me is we're talking about Red Letter Media's like re-looking at like Good, Bad and the Ugly. And you know way more than they do. Obviously, you're pretty much one of, well, I consider one of the experts on the subject. But it's like, try. <laughs> but they, they had that little bit of like, the way I look at the Spaghetti Westerns and Tarantino stuff is that, he doesn't have anything new to say because he's mm-hmm. just trying to regurgitate that feeling. And there's a bit from Back to the Future Part 3 where he's like, Clint Eastwood never wore anything like this. And it's like, who's Clint Eastwood? Because that's what we would have worn in a black and white like film. You would have worn like the pastel colours and things because it pops better on black and white. And they knew not you had to, to mention, film the not counting, to Yeah, not counting the pastels, but, you yeah. know. Obviously, they never saw him on an episode of Rawhide, particularly the early seasons. Yes, yes. Where he's I mean, Rowdy Yates and he's clean yeah. cut because it was yeah. a television western. You know, he wasn't Dirty Harry. He wasn't that. No. he wasn't. It wasn't the seventies bleak. Everything's going wrong. Nature. I was thinking today the way America's going is that Times. Look at Times Square and things like 
you know, I think that the Warriors is going to be a documentary. It was set in the near future. And it's going to be a documentary where Times Square will go back into that thing. New York will be back in the sewer and Coney Island will be a dangerous place to go again because things are going back to, you know, what things predicting like Escape from New York is becoming quite prophetic. And the fact that all these draconian laws are coming back in and mm-hmm. the spaghetti Westerns has something to say about the realism of the West. And then you go to the 90s Westerns, which I've got a lot, of, even the modern, if what I call modern, like Tombstone. Tombstone's not modern, but it's like, no. I love Tombstone because Val Kilmer's acting his ass off in that film. And you look at him with his mm-hmm. very bright white teeth and Ghost in the Darkness, very like Iron Irishman. And it's like, no, you're not. You're not even trying. But I love the chutzpah of that film. And it's got one of the all-time great sound mixes. Oh, gosh, yes. From the Absolutely. LD to this. I've got the German Blu-ray. And it's I just have the, the AC3 LD. And man, so that... It's still cursed on video with all kinds yes. of screwy yeah. transfers and Paramount just finally let it come out on Blu-ray here and it's still a screwy older master, but it's, the no, audio... sorry, it's remastered from the 4K OCN as it says on the back of the shout fact. No, it isn't. It looks the same oh, the German yeah. one without less edge oh, enhancement and sharpening. The I didn't German realize was... they had put that in the claim. Oh geez. It, no, it says it says it's gone back to the original camera negative. Well, it's because Paramount it's is just screwing stuff up left and right. Like I oh God. Um I, I I I did a disc of the year thing last year where I mm-hmm. did little awards for various yeah, yeah, yeah. things because yeah everybody was waiting for me to do that uh, to but I I I, I, I it's going to be impossible for me to not go yeah. crazy because I did I did like a little dishonorable mention section but this year the, the the Paramount did one that's just unforgivable what they did for Liberty Valance oh my yes. god it it's is garbage and the audio the the mono is not even on it's a down mix it's yeah. oh my god it's unbelievable. master looks beautiful i reckon there is something underneath that yeah that is is so close to absolutely perfection so it's like like i've said before on the podcast it's like this should be 4k should be it's probably the last physical format should should be archival yeah, that's the thing. The it, archival version. should be yes. the mindset. It yes. never is. It no. never is. It, it's all about appealing to consumer bases and what they think people want. Yes. And that's not what it should be. It should be archival so that yes. people can go to it and access it the way it was meant and intended to be seen and heard. Like a pristine film scan. Like literally, I don't know why I've got this here, but it's like the BFI get Carter, which yes. is. I've got issues with the sound being a bit quiet, but that looks like I'm, I'm waiting on mine to get here. Uh, it's it's yeah. gorgeous. It is absolutely gorgeous. And that's the way it should look. And it, it's a case of if you have the time to go back and look at these things. I mean, I can live with Ghost in the Darkness looking very sharp and it's not great, but it's OK. I mean, there's yeah, it's two point. It's about two point one to one ish, whereas yeah. the shout one is actually two point three five to one. And I don't know which one's more correct. You look at like the caps and there some shots look better on one versus the other, but it's not right. But the fact that that's the best version I get, like Strange Days, we were talking about earlier, it's like Strange Days, the German Blu-ray, the remastered version isn't great, but it has lots of DTS. It's one of the best sound mixes ever made. It looks pretty good. The UK Blu-ray for some reason still is cut for sexual violence. So that's never going to be an option for me um talking about censorship we were earlier before we did the podcast is like because you've got um going to the news later it's like um cannibal holocaust coming out and there is still violent um animal violence cut real life animal violence which i don't mind but anything else violence wise 
it's made up. It's not stuff. Film eight millimeter was not documentary. You know, Joel, Joel Schumacher is not that subtle. It's these things are fine. I am fine with Ghost in the Darkness being on Blu-ray. Like I say, the Rachel papers. I'd love to have an HD version of that. I can't. I've got to watch a DVD rip of it because the DVD is quite hard to find. So mm-hmm. I've got a rip of it. And it's the best I can get. You know, if I want to watch before they did the 4K remaster about the future, I had the DCP rip that I found and might spread around a little bit. Um, that is the only way to watch that without the huge amounts of DNR that are on the Blu-ray or the framing issues on the DVDs or whatever else. You've got to find the best version of these things. And Ghost in the Darkness, I can live with that deep that Blu-ray. It sounds amazing. It's like um, I can't remember the film the quotes from. It's like a, a brick through a plate glass window. I think it might be. That's Dr. No. Thank you. That is Dr. No. See, you, the Bond thing. <laughs> you're, you're, you're talking like to somebody pit. who walked yes. around as a kid imitating that. Yep. What a PPK, 7.65 mil with a delivery like a brick through a plate, through glass, a plate window. glass window. Takes a blouse silencer with very little reduction in muzzle velocity. The American CIA swear by them. That's why, that's why me and you are doing this, because we have the same references. <laughs> but it's like, but that's what it hits. That, that soundtrack is the same with Terminal Velocity. It's 90 sound mixers know what mm-hmm. they knew that we were doing. They had a toy, and they played with it. Atmos is a great toy. DTSX is a great toy. Aura 3, a little bit. Less. But it's like IMAX, 11 point, 11, 12 channel. It's like, that's an amazing toy. The overhead stuff's a great toy for when you want to use it, but it's rare that it does. And it's like... The Ghost in the Darkness was amazing. We were talking a bit earlier about, you know, I will press the up mix button on my receiver every now and again to see what it does. The shadow sounds amazing up mixed. It just, it adds to it, which is great. But I can also listen to the original 5.1 track, which is what I want. Um, I also watched, and this is, I'm, I'm going to gloss over the next one because I've moved my little thing around. But I watched Band of the Hand because they talked about it on that um, Roger Avery Quentin Tina podcast. Then a little bit of thing because they're talking about Michael Mann and the Keep. And Michael Mann produced that. Um, it's not a good film. It's not well made. It's a TV pilot basically put into a film. Um, but it's it's good for the fact that it had a good idea of these kids that are all being sent to prison and they get trained by I'm going to make his name, Stephen Lang um, who I always knew from the hard way before he was in Avatar. You know, the hard way was how I knew him before anything else. Before I knew him, he was in everything and like a great workman-like actor. Like when I watched Turn Velocity and realized, wait, James Gandolfini's name's in the credits? Really? I don't remember being in this. And it's like, yeah. I didn't remember who he was when I watched Sure Romance. And I'm a, the biggest Tony Scott fan in the UK. That Tony it's like Scott old-fashioned character actors from... Yeah. From the studio up. days where you're like, yeah. oh, God, I know their face. What do I know them from? And then you go and you learn the name and you see. It's not James year. Cagney who was the name. He was the person you went to see in Public Enemy. He was that's who you went to see. But there was also the person who was like the whole stable of the they other performers out. on the studio yeah. roster. Yeah. yeah. And Glanolfini sort of showed up in that. And it was a little bit of that. And it's like Band of the Hand. You're going around, and I've just watched Sandman on Netflix, which I really enjoyed because I, I like Neil Gaiman's work and I loved the comic, the graphic novel. And I was watching Band of the Hand, and one of the guys was just like, Hey, that guy's in the Sandman. What do I know? Oh, he did. Yeah. And I look back, at, Oh, that's who, he was in that. And um, there was Leon, as he became known. Um, he had a surname, and this camera was surname was. He was in Cool Runnings and he'd like a prayer music video. Um, going back to Dave Fincher as well. Um, it's this weird little thing of like, these little these people that turn up and stuff. And it's a good idea of like, hey, Stephen Lang's going to train these guys in combat and about living in survival. And then they'll go into 
war-torn like ghetto and they'll try and make it better and the pimps and the pushers will come and they'll try and drive them out and um lauren holly who was very young at the time her character 16 gets um hooked up with this drug dealer played by oh god what's his name i want to say eric roberts but it's not eric Rob- um james remar who's very much you know bouncing off fact he got fired from aliens basically um and he's a drug dealer and she's 16 and he becomes sort of entwined with her when her boyfriend goes away to prison and and they become a team to try and take down his drug laboratory it's such a weird idea but it could work as a better fit why don't they remake stuff like that where it doesn't quite work yeah where the and potential's there yeah it's a good because idea it's not a proven play. ip if it's not a proven yeah, ip yeah. the analyst the, the 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 everybody's like no this doesn't work band of the hands a stupid name until they have to explain it about three quarters of the way through the movie it's like yeah well that's why they're called band of the hand well that's stupid which is why if you do that you put it at the beginning yeah. so at yeah. least you know or at least some version of that there's a really great one um because i i not too long ago watched indicators release of the criminal code the classic oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. howard hawks early talkie uh gangster picture that yeah. is why we got boris karloff at the star really yeah. um yeah. it's a fantastic pre-code film but the title you know at, at first because the 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 lead character is a, is a young boy who kills a guy in self-defense and yeah. according to the criminal code winds up being tried and, and, and charged with manslaughter and yeah. he has to go to serve a prison sentence so you're like oh well that's why the movie's called the criminal code because everything must abide by the law otherwise everything yeah. would fall in the chaos however over the course of the story you realize there's a second code it's the unwritten code of the, criminal the criminals code. themselves yeah. yeah selves and so it's like wow there's a double meaning of the title so which and oh okay but see it's there at the beginning too yeah. with the sort of straightforward meaning so the title fits it it's not just what's that title mean Oh, we got five minutes left. Okay. You've got to suspend disbelief and you've got to go that thing of like, you can't treat all the audience like an idiot because you've got to get those common denominator for a little bit of it, obviously. But if I was making it, I'd say you'd you'd have a prologue set in Nam or wherever it would be. If you update to modern times, Mm -hmm. it'd be like Desert Storm or whatever. And you'd see the band of the hand, which is what Stephen Lang's like Nam buddies were called they'd get into a fight and they'd all die above Stephen Lang, but you wouldn't find out who Stephen Lang is until later on when he appears in like the Everglades or the jungle, wherever it was, it's Miami. So it would have been because it's, well, it's Miami vice time, you know, it's Michael Mann. So it would have been Miami. Um, and you, you introduce him there and then he explains, Oh, we were the band of the hand or whatever else. So you maybe have some patch on something or some, something yeah. to give it away. But it was, a good idea that wasn't fully fleshed out, but the fact that I got all the way through that and it's not very good and I couldn't get halfway through Drop Zone today, which is weird. I'll give it, I'll finish it, but I just couldn't yeah. make it. Um, I'm going to watch it too, really, actually, now. Yeah, it's, it's not, it's, uh, Terminal Velocity is great. Um, and yeah. I'm really annoyed if people don't like it because it's quite fun. But I, I remember it being kind of fun, but I saw it, it a long time ago. Charlie Sheen has this brilliant line, which made me laugh out loud, which I wasn't expecting, which is, um, he's trying to explain because the whole conceit of the movie, without spoilers, so the setup is um, Natasha Kinski turns up for um, a skydiving lesson. She's never never done it before, and they're up in the plane, and he looks around, and she's jumped out of the plane, so he jumps after her, and she doesn't pull a shoe, and she goes splat. So he gets investigated by the FAA, and they're saying, "Well, look, it's negligence. You let this girl die," and 
he's trying to figure out what happens, basically. So he goes to her apartment, gets attacked, and he finds and steals a picture, which is weird because Drop Zone, Wesley Snipes picks up a picture in a frame and steals it in the exact same way, which I was thinking, weird. They came out the same year. Yeah, it's, it's or, really or maybe there was a spec script somewhere that two yeah, different people used. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Point Break's in there as well. Um, yeah. But there was this really weird bit where it's just like, he, he picks picture up and it's her in skydiving attire. And he's like, she was sky. There's a mystery. And he's actually doing yeah. some sort of detective. And it's like, wait, she could skydive. Okay. So what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And he's talking to James Gandolfini, who is the assistant district attorney, I think it is. And he's saying, um, Oh yeah. Blah, blah, blah. So she was skydiving for, and he goes, do you think she misrepresented her skydiving ability? And he said, Man, she was to bullshit as Stonehenge was to rocks. And I'm like, that's a re- that's David Toohey. That's the guy who was <laughs> making millions selling scripts. He knows how to write a good zinger. And yeah. Charlie Sheen has enough charisma to make that work. There's a little bit. I read Roger Ebert's review while I was watching it. And he he said that there's a point where it goes into hot shots like parody. And there is. There's a bit at the end, which is like you could be in hot shots. Literally, yeah. you could take the scene at the end of that movie and put it into hot shots either one of them and it would work it would fit it's yeah. really yeah it's it's kind of fun but in a too silly way like a zucker abrams sort of way um but it is really good but i've shuffled these around a little bit because these next two i think even though we've commented on everything um and digress quite a bit i think you will probably have more interest in and i'll i'll start with the bond film just to get it out of the way but as you know it's like in the uk they've been showing one after another some chains do it on a Sunday night. My local does it on a Tuesday night. They've been showing the Bond films in order. It is the current 4K masters. Lucky, I would not call them 4K masters. You. Yeah, well, I'd rather a 35 millimeter prints. Oh, um, no, no. You Do you know what we got here? Mm. The Fathom it just, thing, was it? It, it just was happened. It yeah. was Fathom doing Dr. No, and they okay. literally streamed like a low res copy. It wasn't even the Blu-ray. And then apparently uh, somebody reported like one of the, one of the fans went with, with their son. It didn't have audio for like the opening. I, no, and I they didn't restart it. Yeah. And yeah. then it finally came in for the introduction line. And I'm like, that's just pouring salt in the wound. You know? That's really far through the movie as well. Oh, and I'm sure, up. I'm sure it was probably that awful 5.1 remix too. Yes, just to make no, it, it worse. Be, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the worst thing about it is the fact that before the Blu-rays came out, they did it in the UK as well. They had me and my brother went to see Dr. No and Goldfinger um, in the cinema. And they, we'd blown away at the time, obviously before Blu-ray. That was amazing. Those restorations for us, as much as I don't like them, the frozen grain and the later grain, because the grain plates were from not for vintage grain plates. Yeah. Um, and there are better ways, as you and I know, to watch those earlier Bond movies, warts and all, um, that have happened recently. So there are ways to do it. And but still the big screen experience. So once they've been yes. showing these ones again, I haven't been to any of them before. Um the Living Daylights, because Living Daylights was the first one I saw in the cinema. Um, I could have potentially seen A View to a Kill, but my brother dumped me in the Care Bears movie and went to see it with his friend instead. Oh. So a different screen. I mean, I was too young. I was too young. <laughs> it was what? When was you're going to know this, Joe? I've had View to Kill was 1986? 85. 
See, I was fine. <laughs> Sorry, it's I was a bit too me. young. No, that's why I asked. I was a bit too young to see a view to a kill. Um, you're Moore's never world. too young. <laughs> I mean, look, I would have watched it on VHS. I mean, my first memory yeah. ever um, was watching First Blood that my dad or my older brother had rented on VHS. And I remember mm-hmm. seeing Rambo jump into the tree. Vivid memory of the first house I ever lived in as a kid. Rambo jumping into that point. I remember it vividly. So I've watched these films since like day one. So I went to see Living Daylights because the first film I'd ever seen, I'd seen it twice theatrically before that point in 35 millimeter. Um, the 35 millimeter for lots of reasons is ingrained in my head and it's a beautiful looking film. It's well shot. Mm-hmm. The, Which the, the transfers display. usually don't do justice. So people go, Oh, it looks flat. Blah, blah, blah. It's, it's like, gray. No, it's, it's, color. It, it, oh no, it's so much more vivid yeah. and more realized because it's, different photographic style from the Alan yeah. Hume bonds and yeah. try explaining the difference between Alan Hume's bonds and the Alec Mills bonds yeah. to anybody. Yeah. And th- you're just speaking gibberish. They don't under, and, and of course none of the eighties bonds have, have really, they, they don't show off the photography as no. they should. No, I don't think, I think that they spent more time on, um, the Connery ones and Moonraker. Moonraker because they had most visual effects. I mean, yeah, those were the only ones they even scanned. The others were all video masters. Exactly. I yeah. mean, except for Spy Love Me because they went back to do Spy Love Me. Uh, yeah, Spy, Spy Love is Me the is the only Blu-ray yeah. that's. I'm convinced it's actually okay. that's, the, yeah. that's the that's the first appearance of a 4K master. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, and that's I mean, the only, I... that's the only one of the Bond Blu-rays that. I'm actually happy with it's got it's got like yep. a little tiny bit of teal coloring here and there and the iTunes 4K master is is an improvement even yes, over that yeah, which is yeah, saying something yeah. but that's the only one of the Blu-rays that I, I'm actually relatively happy with the others I just I'd, I mean not counting Tomorrow Never Dies World's Not Enough and uh, Die Another Day you know those are those are pretty pretty much relatively in the ballpark well um, weirdly I'll, I'll lean to that because Tomorrow Never Dies mm-hmm. is one I saw recently I mean I saw I didn't see License to Kill because I live about a mile away from my local cinema, which is fine. It's okay. It's got some decent screens and some really bad screens. Um, But that one road, that 1.3 mile road is closed after 8 p.m. at night, which means a massive diversion. And Mm -hmm. I did it for Living Daylights. Um, I didn't want to do it for License to Kill. I don't know why. It was just a weird day. I thought, I'm not going to do it for that. So I watched the... um, I watched 35 millimeter version of it instead and it was beautiful and looked gorgeous and it was amazing. But tomorrow never dies. I whacked on the DTS laser disc, the AC3 laser disc before I went to see it. Now I didn't watch Goldeneye because apart from the fact I'm the only person in the world that loves the Eric Sarah score to it because I love his stuff because I'm a Luke Besson. I grew up on Luke Besson. So oh, I went into that oh, and I'm just you like, are you are not the only person. See, you, I, you, I, you, I you really get, love the see. score. I'm I'm a giant dairy nerd for life. Barry's my favorite composer, but the, the Sarah score, it's experimental. It's his yes. style. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a if you listen to the actual CD, maybe it's a little bit much in places, but that's the score they hired him to do. And yep. then they fought against it in the edit and they keep dialing it down. Yep. And then they they replaced the, the tank chase cue, obviously. But it's like, yes, you hired Eric Sarah to make an Eric Sarah score he gave you what you wanted and you didn't like it so it's like i would drive at least it car. takes risks oh, oh yes, i pulled yes. up to red lights and they have the window down and i'm like oh you're gonna blast crap okay 
Sarah time. Yeah. I mean, I do it and I've got like, um, um, the, the, the big blue score or like the stuff he did, lyrical stuff he did, or a little light of love from fifth element. And I'm driving along and people, what the hell is this? And I'm like, yeah, you, you don't know what the skip, you know, cause I just can't be bothered to explain the fact that he can't really sing. And it's like, oh, what's the song on that? It's, uh, it's called um, <laughs> the, the Something of Love, isn't it? What's it called? I know you dream yeah. of love. Yeah, it's not very good, but I love oh. it. And I, it's like, oh, yeah, the, the theme's good. And we all make fun of it in endearing ways because yeah. you, you, it just becomes part of your experience. And you yeah, literally make fun eye. of the experience of love. Yeah. yeah. But I don't, I don't. I don't love Goldeneye as a, as much as it does a lot of things right. For some reason, Goldeneye never grabbed me. I saw it it's a it's a colder film. It's a colder, uh, more self aware film because it's about the yes. the analysis of Bond. It's a deconstruction and reconstruction for the nineties, and it's that self aware yeah. quality that makes it unique. And it took me forever to figure this stuff out because I was like you and I would watch it over and over growing up and I still love it and adore it. But it's slightly it's slightly closed off in that sense. And also another thing took me forever to realize this. It was cut by Terry Rawlings. Yes, you know, it's the same man who edited Blade Runner. And once you understand that, it's like, oh, my God, it's been in there in front of my face the whole time. It's got a beautiful rhythm. But it's not a typical Bond rhythm, you know. It's like, uh, especially the 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 when we first see Bond in, coming into the office, and he's coming around the corridor into Money Penny's office, and the camera, and it's got this sort of circular yeah. motion, yeah. and it's a strange, interesting edit, and it's very rhythmic, but it's very intelligently yeah. cut, but it doesn't yeah. have that same Bond traditional pacing to it. Yeah. So it's this self-aware quality even in the editing it's it's it it, i it it's slightly closed off i think you have to actively try and dig into it you can't just oh it's self-aware though mm -hmm. because it's like um dalton was critiqued for being a bond of the 80s because it was like the aids pandemic and things like this and he wasn't betting 40 million women he did fine but it wasn't about that it was about being more of a thriller and more Fleming. It and was then, exactly how it is in the books where exactly. And, and that's how Craig it should be because like, without developing the relationship between yeah. Bond and the female characters, there's no, there's no reason die. to care. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you can't have the betting every gorgeous woman in the world that he comes into contact yeah. with, you know, you can still have that if you want to do that, but that's window dressing. Because yes, yes. It, it's part of the world and the experience, and yes, that's fine. But if you don't build the female character relationship, if there is no connection there, then it doesn't matter. And that's the one thing that I I will say that the films have never lived up to the way Fleming did it. Because no, yes, the the books have have dated, uh, you know, in terms of their social outlook. Obviously, they were Sexual written in the fifties. Absolutely, yeah. there is some cultural stereotyping in of there. Course. That's that's part and parcel with most books of that time period. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's just it was a different it was a different time period, literally. Um, but the the heroines that Fleming wrote 
every time I read the books, I care deeply yeah. about yeah. them. You know who they are. You know what their situations are. You know what their emotional state is at the time. You don't always get that in the films. Yeah, I think that Fleming, he tried to make the women the women the characters, but he wasn't very good at writing women all the time. I think that some of them fall a bit flat in their motivations and yeah. they're there to fluff Bond and nothing else. And that kind of makes sense because Bond is the hero and it's the 50s attitudes and that's who he was. I mean, I, I kind of get that. But also, you know, the self-awareness of Goldeneye and the fact that M calls in the section sexist misogynist dinosaur. That's and, the key line. That explains exactly. the whole intent of the movie. And that's great. But after that, they didn't go anywhere with it. That's why I feel it goes that, more again. It goes silly and big because they're which is which is fine. Uh, yeah, that, great. Uh, I love Roger um, Moore movies. The, the that's why I really never liked Judy Dench's M uh, after that point because that's literally her moment as that character. And then after that, it's just like okay, she's well, she kind of there. Back to that in Casino Royale because I think Martin Campbell knows how to direct her in that way. I think it's that same sort of thing. And yeah, it gave her something to do. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, the Martin thing. Campbell. Yes, and the world is not enough. She gets kidnapped, which is taken oh, right out of Colonel Son yes, of M yeah. getting kidnapped. Um, try mentioning that to anybody on the street. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? Um, but Colonel but, Son was split between that and Die Another Day, wasn't it? There was some of Colonel Son Die Another Day a little bit. Oh, yeah, was, yeah. Um, there's not and, much of it, but there's a bit of it here and there. It's a little bit. But yeah, um, Die Another Day actually it pulls from moonraker but i make the argument it also pulls from man with the golden gun the novel yeah and a little part, bit yeah, especially yeah, especially yeah. the opening and of course you know got a license to kill flavor in there too but of course if you don't look at it seriously you're not going to be seeing the sort of soup of all the elements they're pulling from you know and it's like how many times did they technically lift things from the gardener novels without credit um kind of yeah. a lot actually but at the end of the day they've, they've only got a certain amount of stuff to pull from because yeah. Fleming only wrote so many novels and short mm -hmm. stories, you know, and there are some that aren't made, even though Portrait of a Lady, some of that's an octopusy and some that isn't. And then yeah. Hilda Brown Rarity is referenced in I wanna say Spectre. License to Kill. Oh License to Kill as well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um and it's like there there are little bits here and there and the little things here and there. But I think that when you get someone and Tomorrow Never Dies, I like a lot. I think that the Dalton stuff was spy thrillers, mm -hmm. and I think this is closest Brosnan got to a thriller. I think that a lot of it is very special effects led. I think The World's Not Enough is close-ish, but it goes a bit to you know when you have the when you have a car that can do the things you can do. Even in Tomorrow Never Dies, I think he does a lot of spy work when he's going around, you know, um, into um, Carver's like print works and things like that. And he's actually doing spying and then. My favorite scene the in the entire film is it's him great. in Gupta's office with the little David Arnold techno cue. Yeah. And I'm like, because it's really going for it. You see Bond David doing spy things. Yeah, that's, my, that's my favorite. David, uh, that's one of my favorite David Arnold cues because he really just does his thing and, you know, is allowed to do that and not be constantly referencing other things. But he had to score the film piecemeal. So I don't blame him for that. He no, had no, to do I mean, it in pieces and not in sequence. And yeah, so... He kind of he kind of got shortchanged a little bit. I mean, the world is not enough. Is I think his best score. Oh yes, it's, yes, uh, absolutely. Ice, it's something called ice. It's the attack when the guys come down the paragliders. Yes, um, after he has his stupid jacket thing, 
Um, can prepare for that, a cold reception. Exactly. So it's like the, I can't remember, it's called Blue Ice or something like that. That that dun dun dun. That is one of the best Bond pieces of music. Full stop. <clears throat> and I'm someone who likes it, like the Eric Serra stuff and the Hamlish stuff in Spy Love Me, the Disco Bond, as I call it. Yes. Um, and most of it sounds like ABBA. So it sounds like Voulez Vu a lot of it, and it's it's yeah. Really and they use some uh, he uses and... some Bee Gees riffs. Uh, yeah, Bond seventy seven yeah. is literally. Um, yeah. Oh gosh, I can't remember which one it is, but um, it's it's totally a a Bee Gees melody. Yeah, and it is, but it works because it's of yes. the time. Same as David mm-hmm. Arnold was of the time, and you look at Eric Serra, he was a nineties infant too, almost. He was like he was that part of the French new new wave of coming over with. Um, like Besson and um, and all these other people that came over and they were like the new wave and they did American films. So like Jean-Pierre Jeunet and things like this, they all came from their 90s films into doing these big blockbusters because Hollywood went, well, we've run out of people here. We've screwed up everyone else. They've gone independent. You know, we screwed up Fincher and then he went off to do this and we did all these things wrong. So let's get the next band of people that will just take a paycheck and make Alien Resurrection or... Um, whatever else we want them to make. And that's what they did. But I think Tomorrow Never Dies, watching it on the latest disc beforehand helped because there's a bit that says um, Terrace Bazaar, you know. Yeah, the, the burned in captions. Yeah. Yep. And it's bleeds slightly on the latest disc. Yes. And it's burned in my mind because I got the latest disc the day it came out and that 4K, 4K master, it's not, it's a video transfer, like you said, it, it's, it's the same bleed is on that, on the big screen. And it's a reasonably big screen in that that multiplex, that, that one it showed on, the bleed was there. And it's not there later when the later burned in ones where it says Oxford or stuff like that, but it's that it said first, that first one. one. And it's like, that's the same Lace Disc Master. That's the same D5 tape you've had for since 1997. It's the same one. Well, These I'm wondering if master. maybe that's baked into the actual, um, into the actual film, just the way it was done. Because I've, now that you mention it, Every time I've ever seen it in any version, shape, form, yep. even yep. the newer masters, it's always there. If not counting the DVD where it has those awful yes. player generated ones. Yeah, yeah. Shows, that shows that it was it's not on the OCN. So if they went back to the OCN, it wasn't an optical. That would have been digital because it's 1997. Why would you not? You wouldn't have optically printed that because there's no degradation in the footage around. And I love that opening to that film. You know, Bond with that cool leather jacket. And he gives a guy a light and then hits him like filthy habit. Yeah. I love, it. but then he, I noticed this time watching it, he does that gag twice because when mm-hmm. they go, to, when he, when he's like, yeah, for the like, yeah, exactly. And he hits the guy and it's stupid. It's like, you've done the same gag twice, but it's, I like tomorrow never dies because it's more of a thriller. And I can see yeah. why they wanted Waylon to do like a spin-off. It's violent. It's a bit nasty. Stamper. I noticed watching it, in a cinema now has two different colored eyes. I've never noticed that before on home video. It was like, oh, weird. He's like got one brown eye, one green eye. Never thought about it. On the big screen, and I was so many more things are obvious. Yeah, I've seen it so many times. I don't care. I know what the story is. I can mouth along with the things. There were two. There was a twelve-year-old girl and a maybe six-year-old sister who were prattling around in the seats over, and they were making too much noise and giggling and laughing. And fair play to them for seeing a nineteen ninety-seven Bond film. I mean, great. Yeah. But it obviously dumped there for a reason. You know, yeah. someone dumped them or whatever else. But that, with that going on, I didn't care because it wasn't the first time I'd seen it. If it's right. the first time I was seeing it in that same cinema back in ninety-seven, like I did, then I've been really annoyed because they were like. Oh, 
shut up. I want to watch this film, but oh, I was paying admittedly, more attention. Admittedly, I'd be doing that because it, if it's any sort of repertory yeah. screening, I'm like, do you know how rare of an opportunity yeah. this yeah. is? But I, I don't get the fact that, because it's the American English thing. We are quite reserved in our ways. The only time, because I watch all these reaction videos on YouTube every now and again of like, this moment in a, in a screening and they've got people, whoa, yeah, whoa. And I'm like, no. The only time I've no. ever heard applause, 1993, Jurassic Park, opening day, did a queue around the block to see it, literally, to get in to buy your ticket. And at the end, everyone went, and that was it. There's a round of applause for what yeah. Steven Spielberg just presented us because everyone was blown away because no one had seen anything like it. But if you're and blown away, you wouldn't even be able to think to applaud. At least that's how yeah. I've always been. Yeah. Plus, I'm I'm very self-conscious. So even if I would want yeah. to, it's like you're the only person. You're like, you don't understand. This is high art. This is amazing. But of course, if you're thinking that, you're not even going to be thinking of, yeah. I, I should applaud. You're going to be like, the greatest compliment of a Japanese audience when you see a silence. film in Japan, dead silence. Yep. And that's exactly. what it be. It's like, I, I occasionally exclaim when you can't help it. So laughter is an exclamation. You can't help doing that. Yeah. It's the choose old English is an ejaculation. It comes out of you. It's like, you can't help that thing. So it comes out of nowhere. So there are times where when I saw the raid, the Gareth Evans movie, um, I saw it with a guy who's very well versed in cinema in the, we used to work together and we used to walk past each other on a busy Saturday in retail and we used to go lines from aliens. So you say one line and then next time we pass each other, I say the, the following line or yeah. Terminator 2 or whatever we had the same reference for. And there were lots of those things, but we saw it together and it was like, oh, fuck, eesh, just whoa, the whole time watching the raid because it's like, Jesus. Whoa. Or when I saw with the Age of Ultron, you know, there's a scene where someone dies and I'm like, I said, fuck out loud because I was like shocked and I didn't mean to, I was like, you know, because yeah. I didn't mean to say it. It was that little thing, but I don't mind that in Tomorrow Never Dies because I've seen it so much that I can sit there and just pay attention. So I can see that, hey, Michelle Yeoh used a stunt double way less than Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan is barely on that motorbike. Like, literally, he's very rarely on that motorbike, but you see her face a lot. You never see his, but you see hers. And when they're showering after the motorbike scene, he's got a really hairy back, which stands out on a massive screen. I'm like, Oh, I never noticed that before. It's like the sunlight <laughs> glinting, but it's the weird yeah. things you know. But Stamper has got two different color eyes, and I'm like, is that the actor? I meant to look up actually. Is it the actor, or is that a, a choice in the fact that he's got these things? But it was shown on ITV in the UK on the Sunday before this, and they cut the Doctor Kaufman scene pretty much. So I know probably it's, probably just for time and the fact that how it ends yeah, is too violent, yeah. intense. It's not it's not violence, it's the intensity of it. And it's at eight PM at night. So it's yeah. past the watershed, as we yeah. call it. And it's like it's Which fine is the to point show of the scene. You know. It it's so stupid. But that's why Dr. No was cut and yes, still, yes, you yes. know, we still don't get the joke because he's supposed to shoot him six yeah. times, yeah. which is overkill, which is part of the tension reliever, and that's the joke you've had your six, and it's like Okay, yeah. you know it's that's like... what gets me about these things. Censorship really ruins films. It's like the one that got me for years was *Lethal Weapon 2*. So mm -hmm. *Lethal Weapon 2* is a very violent film in a lot of ways, but it's you know it's also a Bugs Bunny cartoon. You know, it's that kind yeah. of that thing. It's it's but, still got the Shane Black in there. Yes, but he yeah, is, he is yeah. he is already getting dialed out. Yeah, 
I mean, so, it's, yeah. Jeffrey Bohm has really sort of taken a lot of the Shane Black out. But there's a bit when he goes on the rampage after Rika gets killed, yeah. where he smashes that guy's guy's head in the door. That's barely in the UK original version. Mm-hmm. And then there's a bit at the end where he shoots the entire clip of his Beretta at that one guy, and he's going through yeah. the names of the people that died. That's not in the original UK version, pretty much. And it's like Jeez, when I saw that's... when I saw the uncut version, I was like, oh. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's what it was doing originally. It's storytelling, it's his yes. rage, and yes. he becomes that lethal weapon again. And yes. the whole thing of like knocking on the heaven's door when he's meant to die, we've really gone away from my list. Um, that's okay. Um, but it's just like it's that whole thing of like Riggs was meant to die, and then Murtaugh becomes a lethal weapon, which was Shane Black's original outline. And you could cut a little bit of Riggs coughing blood and coming back to life and make that Shane Black version of that movie, which is great. Yeah. And that Murtaugh does kill the main bad guy. And that's the whole point of it. He becomes a lethal weapon and that was the transfer, but they love Riggs too much and want a sequel. So they wouldn't ever cut that. And Mel Gibson was at the height of his fame. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it made sense on, on yeah. paper. And for that movie, the way it was written and shot, yeah. it would not have, it would have not worked to have right. the Shane Black ending of him dying. It would have felt like you were, you'd been cheated. It would have felt wrong. Had it been the original story concept, uh, and I still want to read that original Shane Black Lethal Weapon 2 script. I forget who he co-wrote it with, but I still want to read that so badly. Um, But, you know, the movie they shot, it would not have worked with that dark ending. So they they were perfectly right because they had changed, uh, you know, everything leading up to that. But, yeah, Lethal Weapon, you know... I, I I enjoy and love all of them. I still, they should have done right. five years ago. They still need to do five. It still might happen. It should happen. Um, I don't know what else Donna. But, I mean, Gibson's a good director apart from his mental issues, but I think that he's, he's not Donna. I don't the, Donna can balance the omen. Yeah. Superman, you know, he can balance that. But I think, I think if they actually brought Shane Black in and they made sure, like, I know they have some script that they like, but yeah. it's got to have that edge, that grit and that gravitas because I, I love Donner to death, but I think he did cut some important things. Like some of those deleted bits in yeah. one. Yeah. yeah that yes. were in the home video version. It's like, oh, that was some of the cut. best material. Oh, it was, but it's uh, like and, and then there's that's... other stuff that t- popped up on the Blu-ray that yeah. was from yeah. Shane Black's script that was deleted, like extra little character bits yeah. when after the, the kids have been kidnapped and they're in the house, they're, wait- oh, whoops. they're waiting for the phone call of the kidnappers, yes, yeah, the yes. little bits of tension there. And it's like, Oh, this is gold. Like, it's not that long. Why did you cut that? Like this, there's is- a reason he's the, was the biggest screenwriter in the world. There's a reason he made $7 million from yeah. writing long Good night. Yeah. You know, there's a reason he, he was brought in to fix last action hero. And, you know, there's a reason though- why kiss, kiss, bang, bang is one of the only movies of this century that I truly and absolutely adore. Yes. Same with Nice Guy. I think yeah, Nice Guy yeah. is one of the best comedies. It's hyper-violent, but it's one of the best yeah. comedies made in recent memory. But he tried to do the big studio thing again and realized yep. that, hey, the Predator went a bit wrong and they screwed him. Mm-hmm. And that's a shame. I don't think his his version would have been perfect, but I think it would have been a lot better than what we got. But I think that, you know, going from all these things, I think that 90 sensibility has to come back. I think that you look at things like Tomorrow Never Dies, where it is balancing that. And like I said, that Roger Moore silliness, because I've got a Man with a Golden Gun poster framed on my wall. You know, Fury Eyes Only is one of my top five favorite Bond films because it is more Fleming. It's the most Fleming Roger Moore Bond, I think. Maybe Living That Die a little bit. 
but he's, he's actually out for revenge and he's dangerous. And he is that mm-hmm. almost, if you put Timothy Dalton in for your eyes only, it would work. Yeah, absolutely. Because he is that when he kicked, and Roger Moore hated kicking that car over the cliff, but it worked because, because that's what the film was trying to do. And, uh, and I have this, I have this theory that, uh, and again, this is just after years of analysis, but uh, you know, if you have a lighter, and mm-hmm. you try to, and you take several times, you get the little sparks yeah. and yeah. it takes several times. And then finally it clicks in and you get the flame. Well, for me, I have this little theory of the final three Roger films, the yeah. bonds of the eighties, four years on the octopus, a view to a kill. They have a sort of linking theme of using the Fleming short stories and trying to yeah. get grounded after Moonraker and stuff. But if you look at it, they're slightly different modulations of that idea octopus it goes more in for the adventure post raiders and trying to because yes, of course yeah. george mcdonald fraser starting out writing it that's why it's a, an outlier in bond films really but then uh yeah maybe alan wilson come in and rewrite that but it's got more of attention the b plot is a yeah. legitimate fantastic extremely prescient plot um and it's sort of buried in there, but it's in there. But if you look at those three, I think that if you combine all of them, it's like when you're trying to get a lighter started yeah, and yeah, it yeah. clicks in on the living daylights, because if you look at it, the living daylights has all of the things they were trying to do in the final three Roger films. But it's like, here is where they actually come together and perfectly get unified. And yeah. it, it fires on all cylinders because I, I love the final three Roger films. And if, in fact, I think of you to a kill is actually the best of the final three. If, if I had to choose, which is yeah. like really freaking hard. Um, and it hurts me to even say that, but because there's that emerging darkness that yes, is yes. the precursor of the Daltonian era, if you want to call it that. Um, and it's it, it's also got more of the flavor of the novels. But if you look at those last three films and you think about, oh, well, this is doing this and this is doing this and this is doing this. And you start to think, well, what if you sort of homogenize them a bit and sort of you and then it's like I suddenly realized that's the living daylights. That's, yeah, I mean, you've got that's what it, that the stuff was there. It's not, oh, yeah. Dalton came in and it was brand new. And, you know, it was like, no, that stuff was there. It's what they were been building towards. That's why they started going back and pulling bits of Fleming they hadn't used, yeah, yeah. which they continued to do in the two Dalton films. Uh, but it, it, it's a building thing. Everything in the series up to a certain point influenced what came next and they okay this worked and this didn't work well let's take this and let's go further with this so uh, again i think if you sort of distilled the final three roger films that's what gives you the dalton films it's a very good theory it actually really works because i think that dalton the dalton films hit the tone balance because license to kill as you know it was censored and it was really hard and it's about the cocaine trade you know Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's really hard hitting. It's more of a, it is a Michael Kamen scored film. It's basically Die Hard. You know, it is basically an 80s action thriller with Bond in it, but also has a gun that's a camera. It has a, a walkie talkie built into a, you know, a broom. It's, it's silly, not losing but... yes. Bond. It's not yes. losing the Bond isms, which is my biggest problem with the modern films. I have yeah. many issues with them and, you know, okay, you wanted to reboot it. That, 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 that's fine. But they lost 
not just the bond distance, but they lost a lot of, of the bond character for me. And that's, that's yeah. my big problem. That's why I, 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 they, they drive me crazy because it's like, if you want to do a different version of something, there's been how many versions of Sherlock Holmes, how oh, many thousands. versions of Dracula, oh, thousands. Yeah. but what makes all of those work when they do work is you have the core elements there. You can play Sherlock in different ways, but if you don't have that core there, it's not Sherlock Holmes. It's not Tarzan. If you don't have the core of Tarzan as a character, if, if you change the core, then just do something else, you know, um, it's worth having an idea. So if you look yeah. at things like, um, like I said about going back to Westerns, it's like, because I love open range, that mm-hmm. doesn't mean the searches is any less of a film. It just means that I think open range is, you know, it's valid. It's got something else to say. It's got something it's, different. It's saying say. something. Yes. Which and it's got few modern Westerns do. And oh God, a sound mix to die for. Oh, and the attention to trying to get the realism of the gun battles yeah. and yeah. how miserable it was. And then the actual loudness, the deafening loudness yeah. Of just a pistol going off, it's like, oh my it's gosh, stunning! And the place fills with smoke, and it's just, yeah, it's it's really evocative of something. Has something to say, but I think that the reason that, and I don't hate outwardly hate any of the Bond movies, but the reason that Vuitoko and Octopussy are near the bottom of my rankings because Octopussy will do the spy stuff and it'll do the thriller stuff, but then it also have Bond and clown makeup, and yeah, it, it, it can't balance the things like. Dalton did and Mm -hmm. then things like Tomorrow Never Dies did quite well because Tomorrow Never Dies is a silly film you know it has but it's increasingly more and more prescient too so it's the one that grows it really works as well if you think of like the bit that always got me and it's hits even more in the cinema I suppose which is the bit where Bond um, goes to pick up his rental car from Avis and Q comes out in his Avis uniform and when he's doing the little like damage collision and David Arnold goes and he just highlights the jokes and it's like oh that's just silly but it works because later on you know this whole thing about paris and her getting killed and given a life and him feeling bad about it and bond actually hating the fact that that happened and there are reasons for things happening which move plot forward and it's it's got a stealth boat in it it's not you know it is basically the same plot as um um uh, um, you only it's, live twice. Yes, and the, it's, it's the yacht plot something. again. Yeah, and it's because they rewrote it because MGM yeah. threw out the script. Yeah, and it's stupid. And I that's that's those. that's the issue that 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 again, people don't know this, but you know that's that's what has held it back over time yeah. is they had massive scripting problems. Yes, yes, but it works because it has verve and drive. And you have Sam Peckinpah's editor directing the movie and not listening to the yes people because there was friction there between him and Eon. But also he was having to shoot a movie without a finished script. And Bruce Fierstein is sitting there writing feverishly every single day. And, you know, it's a struggle. And they had they got that thing done. They edited it on um, like an early version of Avid with uh, the like early temp forms of the handful of CG shots. So when they previewed it to the studio, it was literally projecting off of an Avid program, probably in standard def, you know. So, I mean, they but it's cut on a dime. 
it is the, the first bond in ages to clock in in under two hours, which is a key yeah. important factor that most people don't pay attention to. So it's at least trying to get back to at least yeah. some degree of the lost Peter Hunt verve, yeah. which yeah, is think- the, the, the there are there are two great losses in the in the series in terms of what made bond bond what made them work and what gave them the identity one is losing peter hunt in any way shape or form and two and the one that's probably even bigger is when maybelm died Oh because God! Yeah, because he was the voice of Bond. He was what that, made Bond that voice. Oh my gosh! That you know, and of course, after License to Kill, Cubby Broccoli didn't was not the hands-on producer. Yes. Yeah. It was getting into the digital era, so it's sort of a line in the sand there. But that, in terms of you know the identity, you know that those were massive. So when you get any bit of that energy back in there, it's like oh my God. <laughs> Well, weirdly, I mean, it's going on to the next, the last film before the one where you actually get into. It's like, it really sort of segues into that in that the two things that I want to see from modern Bond, who I'd love to see direct, either of these two people direct a modern Bond film, like a Daniel Craig one, let's say, mm-hmm. is um, John Glenn. I'd love to have seen oh, what he oh, would God, have done yes. with, like, a Pierce Brosnan, with all the tools that are yes. available. The oh, CG and the ideas that would have been amazing. And the person who directed the other film that I watched from an Indicator release, um, go back to Indicator, which is Force 10 for Navarone, which I haven't seen since it was on TV on a Sunday mm-hmm. afternoon on like a really oh, God, bad pan and scan version. I absolutely love it. Never seen the extended version before in my life. I've only yeah. seen obviously the theatrical version. And I put on the Indicator Blu-ray. I've had the box set since the day it came out. Only just watched it literally last week. I don't know what, yeah. why I didn't watch it. It just literally sat on the pile. Me and you probably got way too many discs and things. Yes. So it's like it goes on a pile and either gets watched the day it comes in or it goes, oh, that's a Sunday movie or that's a movie for a rainy day. Or, you know, there are some things that go with some sort of, you know, feeling or whatever else. So it's like I always watch these. And Ghost in the Darkness was a Sunday movie to me because it's kind of a, like a Western. So it had that feel. So I watched Force 10 because it felt like a Sunday movie. So I watched it the same day as Ghost in the Darkness. And this is one where I played around with the, I say, receiver. So it's a mono track. I put the up mix on. No, straight mono. Leave it as it is. And watching it again, just seeing the fact that, obviously, it was very heavily influenced. It should have been made a lot closer to the Guns of Navarone. It should have been made, yeah. like, five years oh, afterwards, yeah. not well up, like, ten years afterwards. Um it literally, Guy Hamilton walked off the set who the spy loved me with half the cast and just went, Richard Kill's coming with me, but yes. coming with me. When I and finally it, it saw it, I'm like, oh my God, this is so much. And and yep. then the, the tone, the dark yep. humor, oh, and it's, it's so like, oh. And it's but like... That bit that stands out to me was sitting there watching it. And like I said, I haven't seen it in a very long time. Never seen the extended version. So you get the little bits of like, oh, Edward Fox being, you know, it felt like, oh, I get this. And this is very British. And, oh, Harrison Ford's doing his roguish charm. And I get it. And Carl Weathers has turned up out of nowhere before he was Carl Weathers, before anyone knew who he really was. And it's like, okay, yeah, okay, I sort of get it. Yeah, okay. And it's that scene where they meet the the partisans. And it's like Richard Keel comes up with his very badly dubbed voice. And there's the, the bit, and I'm just like, with him and Carl Weathers, and I'm like, oh, that's not aged well. But it's age appropriate that these people you know close to serbia or wherever it was they mentioned serbia in our camera it's it's like they'd never seen like an african-american before in their lives Mm -hmm. 
or you can believe that living in the mountains or whatever, yeah. they've heard of something. And it's like, but it's like the language and things like this. And it's like why Dan Busters get censored now for the N-word. You know, it's, I get it. You know, modern sense. Yeah, ex- like, exactly. But I sent that that link to my brother of like that scene with Richard Kill and Carl Weathers. And I'm just like, hey, you know, that's, you know, and that's censored apparently. I was reading it again, reading IMDb as I was going through. It's like all the TV versions Sharon take like, the language out because he calls him Blackie. And it's like they've taken that out of yeah. the TV versions. And I get why, because. You oh, know, absolutely. Yeah. But it is quite dark and it is quite. And it feels like a Bond film. It's yeah. set up like a Bond film. It has the intro, um, and it leads into the setting up of the mission. And it is a real men on a mission movie, but not quite like the dystopian version like you get with the Dirty Dozen or something like that. It feels more of that that pure 70s. It's Guy like, Hamilton and not Aldrich, where everything sucks. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And it's like, there's some hope. You yes. Know, if they pull this off, we will live through this. You know, There's a sense of fun. Yeah, and he has that yeah. sense of idea, and he has that sense of some of the effects are way ropier than a Bond film. You know, the the plane going in and crashing, but they have this this team Force Ten, and they're going to go in, and they're going to oh wait, they're all dead. Yeah, and in the first ten minutes, half of them are dead, yeah. and it leaves like two of them. So there's and, still a reality there, and yeah. of course, Hamilton was it was a commando. You know, he yeah, he he, he, he had lived through this yeah. stuff, so yeah, he gets a, a sly humor in there. But you know, when 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 everything when it when it goes bad, you know, it yes. it, it goes bad, and you and then they're stranded in the middle of nowhere. And how do they complete their mission? Yeah. And they're counting people, and can they be trusted? You know, what what's going to happen? So yeah, I mean, there's there's a good element of reality in there, even though you read about the production and people said, Oh, the movie's not very good. It was compromised or it was miserable. Yeah. They, the script wasn't finished. And I'm like, well, yeah, but it's really great. Actually. Yeah. Ford actually either speaks highly of it or badly of it. And they, he had, I think had fun making it, but doesn't like the finished product, which I kind of get. I mean, it's got its flaws, but it's a men on a mission movie. It's got that sense of like fun. Like you say that, is a Bond, it's an adventure movie. It is like yeah. you could transplant most of that into, you could take, you know, Roger Moore out, out of like, I don't know, something like probably an earlier Moore film. They say live and let die and put him into that. Yeah, it sort of has the flavor of of like Shout at the Devil or Gold yeah, or, yeah, yeah the, it, which is sort of like a forgotten genre of, these grittier adventure films with a lot of location footage. Like Athena, and, you know, it's that type of yeah, thing. Of Escape like to more, yeah, Escape to Yeah. And especially films. the World War II, yeah. late 70s, early 80s British Men films. Men on a Mission like, movies. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's what mm-hmm. we like. That's what I like. And it, it was a fun Sunday afternoon watch. And it was, yeah. it was, all right, there's about four too many double crosses and triple crosses and double agents <laughs> and whatever else. And it, it gets a bit silly, but I don't mind silly in the fact that it, doesn't take itself that seriously until it needs to you know and it doesn't overstay some, welcome oh god yeah there are some horrific deaths in it and there's some quite nasty mm-hmm. moments and you know there are some questionable things and it's like okay that's a little bit but it was war and you kind of get that from the fact that hamilton lived through some of that and it's yeah that's why Hem- hamilton and fleming kind of went hand in hand and you know you can see why the fact that he broadcast with him to bring that sort of that feeling back because that's why you know jaws was such a hit in 
despite that's why he came back and that's why they kept him alive because i'm sure they plan to bring jaws back after moonraker oh yeah yeah but they they just never got around to doing it and then you know you have homage is like batista um in um specter you know with his teeth and things like that and you have little bits and the train fights very from russia with love um but that but not as good um but there are moments that work in force 10 even though it is the lesser sequel guns never in is a better film it just is a better film it's that high art version of doing that men on a mission movie but the best way of doing a men on a mission and movie. and so influential and underrated yeah. and undervalued yeah. and yeah, yeah. And it's it's good that you know Sony went back and released the 4K and things like this, and mm-hmm. it's great indicator of preserved both versions of this with original mono track and all these other bits and tons of extras and all these yes. other great bits. But it's it's weird seeing it in how Guns Never Own is very much a war movie, and that era of war movie, whereas this is an adventure men on a mission movie, not quite the, like I said the Dirty Dozen that bleak, like really sort of almost wild bunchy sort of thing yeah you know um but it, it wasn't quite that nasty yet but it had it verged with that but guy having to get the fun going and it kind of worked it's kind of like trying to to glue together a war film and a caper film yeah it is it, it does it doesn't work in all areas but it, yeah. that's the sort of i think sense they were going for you can see him pitching ideas to eon and then, or you know you're cubby going oh i don't know about that or i don't know about that. i'll steal it and i'll use it in this you yeah can see, yeah there was the probably way. some set piece yeah some set piece that you thought you know, i'm gonna steal that and i'm gonna use that in this or because there are points where they're spying basically you know whether they're, they're breaking into the place to steal the um explosive equipment because the explosive equipment has all got used you know yeah and there are some cool moments like that and it's like we've got to blow up this bridge where well, we can't i'm explosive expert i'm telling you we can't blow up the bridge well, there's a dam down the road. We didn't tell me there was a dam. I could blow up the dam. That's great. And that'll blow up the bridge. And it's like, yeah. why didn't we think of it? And it's, it is a caper movie is the best way to put it. It's like if Ealing made like a war movie, yeah. but with a little bit of the darkness that maybe comes mm-hmm. in from later things like the Dirty Dozen and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So um, from what we've been watching into um, the main reason that we've both assembled here and you've probably got spade over your shoulder there is um i rewatched a film um this week that i saw originally in the cinema in 1998 um i have my original cinema ticket literally to hand which is there which is the avengers um not the avengers that all these kids know nowadays it's the avengers yep. based on the 60s tv show with um patrick Nee and um, avengers. yep and the late diana rig <laughs> um so if you look at all these kids that got me really confused. It's like the Hellfire Club became a thing now on T-shirts because of apparently Stranger Things. But the Hellfire Club was always mm. the Avengers that became the X-Men because the X-Men comic book based Hellfire Club and Emma Frost on Emma Peel yep. from the Avengers. And that's how that came. And I'm like, well, these kids wearing... Oh, it's a new reference. That Okay, mm-hmm. fine. Um, but yeah, the Avengers, which was... Um, I'm going to murder his last name as I do. It's like Jeremiah Cheshnik, is it? Or I, I, I think I've they pronounce ways, it. Che- like I've heard it Chechik too, so I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, he came off a massive hit. Um, it was quite liked at Warner Brothers under Jerry Weintraub um, through um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation um, because it was a massive hit for them and Weintraub quite liked him. They had the rights to the Avengers. It was a known property that like we saw in about I, saying about IP being a big thing. So Americans didn't know what the Avengers was. Um, it was very rarely shown over there. Obviously, 
I was more of a prisoner kid when reruns were showing up. I liked the prisoner a lot more. Magoon was sort of badass and Avengers was always a little bit silly. Um, but I went to see this because for some reason, the tra- the trailer's very good. I mean, we both rewatched the trailer recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trailer is very good and it got me in the seat. But this was a time in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, when I was 15 in 1995. From about that point onwards, I was going to the cinema pretty much every week and I saw everything. So anything that was out in my little three screen cinema, I would see everything. So the fact that I've seen a lot of these random things, like I saw the um, John Travolta film, Michael, I was the only person in a massive screen. No one else went to see it apart from me, apparently. And I was like, great. But I also went to see the Avengers in there, Escape from L.A., you know, from Dusk of Dawn. I saw everything in that period. And the Avengers was something that I knew of. I'd seen the occasional episode. Um, Fines was just coming off the English Patient, which won the Oscars, and it was like a big prestige thing. Obviously, Uma Thurman was falling out of love. This was four years after Pulp Fiction. It was two years after Batman and Robin became notorious, shall we say, another film I saw on the cinema day one. Um, But it became that thing of like this cast, with Connery obviously being a Bond fan, you know, I wanted to see it because the trailer was really good, and it had all these things of the saint which i love which says the year before in 97 um i loved the saint day one when i saw it in the cinema i bought the laser disc the vhs i bought the soundtrack yeah there it is that's a gorgeous laser saw disc. this opening week it's such a good film um and weirdly another film where reshoots happened after test yes i i have that in my Gettin list did. of yeah. yeah um the avengers um flopped disastrously it was a film that came out it didn't find an audience um saw it it in an empty theater totally empty yeah i think it's two me and two other people maybe and it was i enjoyed it i thought it was quite fun i don't think oma thurman has ever looked as good as she looks in this movie i think it's well shot i think it's weirdly the action in it the um, robotic waspy slash chase sequence is really well made, really well directed, and really well shot. I think it's second unit. I think is either this. There was a film I watched in my list. It was either this or Terminal Velocity that had Vic Armstrong as the second unit. I don't think it was this, um, but I it was like for sure. I know. I, I know they changes. either built it up or they tacked it on. Um, yes, it was definitely an addition. Yeah, but it's yeah. really well. I want to um, say that he might have because that seems to ring a bell. Yeah, and it's really strange because it is such a really well-made action sequence and really well directed, and it hits quite well. It sort of sticks out because it's yeah. it's it's like the most polished bit of action in the whole thing. Yeah, in, in um, the version we have. Well, in the version we had, definitely. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem with it, I think, is that, you know, he, this film became a film out of nowhere because it flopped and everyone thought, oh, that's a terrible, he was the second unit director on the, okay, all right, okay, I'm glad to know my memory wasn't faulty. Well, that's the thing, he had a run of Starship Troopers, Tomorrow Never Dies, Black Dog, which I don't know what Black Dog is, is that, that John Woo film with, um, Dolph Lundgren, I think it's something else. Oh, it's Patrick Swayze film. Yeah, so Patrick Swayze okay. film directed by Kevin Hooks, whoever that is. Um, and then after Avengers, he did Entrapment. So he kept on with Connery, apparently. Yeah. Um, and there are some Bond-type stunts in Entrapment, especially when they yeah. get in the get on the towers long yeah. before Ghost Protocol. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, but there's um, 
wonder yeah, where he got some... that idea from. Hmm. It's he didn't strange. steal from a Bond film that time. No, but there's some really good ideas here and there, and it it sort of felt like it worked. I mean, this was the summer of like Lost in Space as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Lost in Space against Stephen Hopkins. I I just there's something about a Stephen Hopkins film that I will defend until the end of time, even though they're not very good. I can see the flaws in Lost in Space, um, same as I see the flaws in Avengers. But it was that thing of I liked it at the time. I don't know why, and also yeah. didn't know why. Other people liked it as an 18-year-old. And later on, you come to realise that the more you watch it, you realise that, well, that doesn't really go anywhere. Or why are they acting like that? Why are they acting very staid and very mm-hmm. one note? There's very monotone in their delivery. And it's only when you look into what happened behind the scenes. And there was always a thing of there's a Twitter, someone on Twitter who is basically the biggest Avengers fan in the world who has all the cut footage you can find, all the cut um, scenes you can find, whether it's like a still or whatever else. And he's also traced the fact that the teddy bear suits, which is an amazing visual scene, the visuals yes. in this film are amazing. But the teddy bears um, appeared in a Spectre Gadget, the Mashford Roderick film, another Warner Brothers joint. And um, Chesnick did a, a um, TV show, I can't remember the name of it, but he had one of the teddy bear suits in that as well. So there there are little themes that go through because the visuals in it are quite striking. Um, but it turns out it was around, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, 118 minutes and got cut down to, was it 98-ish minutes? Uh, Something along those exact lines? numbers. It's supposed to be somewhere in the neighborhood of two hours. And yeah, 89 yeah. minutes. 89. I think the quotes are, it's about 115 to 118 minutes was the original yeah. runtime. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and, I linked to um, yeah, an article that I found. Um, there was a, there's a British cipher magazine called SFX that started in the 90s. I used to read every week. Um, and they did a look back on it. I actually got some quotes from the director and like from everyone involved. And it's quite a, quite a good article. It's only about four pages, but it's, it's fascinating to see all the stuff that they did cut. And then you look at the trailer and realize that Oh, the trailer actually tells the story of the film that was shot. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was a big Eddie Izzard fan and he got cast as a henchman who has one line. He just says, fuck, and that's it. But he had three lines originally, which isn't a huge amount. But I remember him and Sean Ryder, because I was a big Happy Mondays fan, um, growing up as a 90s kid. You know, I listened to a lot of Manchester's music and he came out of that. And they're driving around in a mini. This was like the coolest film in the world, but there was such yeah. stuff missing. And when you realize, when you look back on it, oh, the version we got isn't the director's cut. Nope. They took it back and they threw out an entire score because it didn't fit. There's a Michael Kamen score for this mm-hmm. film somewhere. Yep. You can't hear it anywhere because they chucked it because they couldn't re edit it back around their new Warner Brothers approved cut because. The story goes um, on all the research that I did that Weintraub, Weintraub really loved what the script and he really loved what was going to be made and he championed it Warner Brothers and um, they were away for about a year making the film and when the director came back into the US the whole of Warner Brothers' head top brass had changed. Mm-hmm. One person there liked the film, one person there didn't and the person who didn't won and therefore... 
he got the screen test and i don't know if this is hollywood hollywood legend but i'd read it somewhere else before i don't know whether it's in there's a great book called john carpenter john carter john carter and the gods of hollywood which is about hollywood accounting and all these other things i think it might be in there or something i've read it somewhere else before about the fact that it was screened to hispanic crowd who were just like it's too english yeah it's it was like Avengers. supposedly in arizona somewhere and yeah. it was just it they they didn't they didn't prepare anybody they didn't market it right no, and no. I, when you really start to look at it then it makes sense why there's this dreamlike surreal quality like you said there's a yeah. in the release version the acting seems almost stilted in yeah. ways yeah. but when you dig a little deeper it's like no there's there are gaping holes like yeah. to say it's it's not just a plot hole where the, no there are gaping like they literally just went in there and just cut swaths out and that's why the film as released is so frequently incoherent yes. it's not the fault of the people who made it and they suffered for a long time and still you can't bring up this movie without the instant if people even know it you know yeah. and you have to explain no i'm not talking about marvel stuff I'm not even talking about comics, but most people don't actually read the comics. Um, But you have to explain it. If they even know it, they immediately grow and they go, oh, God, that weird thing that I saw once on TV with the teddy bears and Connery in a kilt. Yeah, but you've got to dig a little deeper because the history of this film is just uh, vital to understand what happened. Because like you said, you recognize stuff in there that – for some reason you like it, but it feels weird. It's disjointed and it jerks you around because they didn't, it's not the film they made. It's, it's just not it. it, And cutting a film down to under 90 minutes when it's a two hour film, it's the old adage of if something is good, you don't feel the passage of time. It could be a three hour movie. It feels like 90 minutes, but if you cut something badly and you cut it down, way too tight and you remove all kinds of explanations and character details and things you make it incomprehensible and then you have a 90 minute movie that feels three hours long because it feels like it never ends because you feel every minute because you're like what is going on i don't know this doesn't make any sense why did they do that why are they acting so weird why is there this maze what is there okay is it a clone is it a duplicate why do we have this what how does this tie in uh what you know because the we don't even have the original opening that was a whole very elaborate sequence that sets up the plot that was just removed it's alluded to in little flashes but you don't even have the the explanation of the main thrust of why the plot gets moving and Rogue even more, in the trailer that's the yeah thing that gets me, yeah the that's that... it's all there people think oh rogue one is how all that stuff started where you see stuff in the trailer it's not in the movie oh no no that stuff existed for a long time and you look at the avengers trailer yeah. and a good percentage of it is all material that was thrown out but it's um, rogue one a was good like, chunk of it rogue one was shot for the trailer that was the point where evans and Gilroy, who really sort of made most of that film, he is like they they did bits, and Evans says about it all the time. Is Evans or Edwards? Edwards. Um, he says all the time about, um, oh, that was a trailer shot. I shot. Yeah, that they, they cooked it up especially. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I get that, yeah. but it's like you look at the fact that the stiltedness is the fact that in the original, the trailer tells the story, and that Emma Peel turns up in a retype jag. She goes down 
in the um, phone box. She kills Roger Lloyd Pack, who's only fools and horses for people who know like the English, big English like sitcom. Um, he is you barely see him in the actual film. He's just like blurry on a CCTV screen. Um, but she kills him and she breaks in to this weather center. And the whole point is Steed is brought into the ministry as a top agent to say this is going on. The weather's going bad, which they keep saying in the movie, but you never really see. It's Correct. sunny or there's snow or there's right at the end. There's a bit of a tornado, but you don't really see any. Of this no, snow. there's just, like, I think there might there. be a fleeting bit of dialogue where they allude to bad weather in other yeah, areas. Yeah. And yeah. then, oh, well, two plus two equals four. Well, yeah. we, we don't get any of that. Yeah. But you see it in the actual thing because they, this is going crazy because the Prospero thing's been hacked or whatever else. And she's, there are, frag, there are fragments. I mean, you've got the novelization, which will fill in a lot more gaps than what I've, gleaned from like articles at the time or little bits here and there and little cut scenes but um she breaks in and then the whole thing is steve doesn't know whether she's real or a robot clone or whatever else and he's standoffish with her because he doesn't trust her and she has to earn that trust and there's a lot feeling her out yeah exactly yeah He's doing his job, and there's a lot of times where he comes. I don't think I think he's badly cast. I think Fines now would probably do it better, but I think that he's badly cast there, and he's very stoic and very too British. And I think that I mean, it's, he was it's never a like bit, that. It's it's a bit too stoic. That's it's it, it's, and and with like, that sort of stilted quality of what they were yeah. going for in the scenes, that because it's like. Oh, don't eat the macaroons. They're mother's favorite, you know. And it's like, okay, yes, yeah, it's funny, cute line, whatever. But there's not a lot of the the, the charm is all surface charm. It, there's it feels like not a in a lot of ways to me. The way the dialogue doesn't flow because yeah, and it, it, it's it's not exactly anybody's fault. That's why it's it's a hard thing to to pinpoint. But you know, I, I'm sitting there the whole time, every time I rewatch it, and I'm like, you know, Pat Patrick was there. He has a cameo. Just you should have just said screw it and just said, um, all right, all, all, all right, Patrick, here you just you just do it. Just do it. <laughs> they wanted like Mel Gibson to be Steed, and he had yeah, more and, and the the, worked, the history of getting yeah, it off the ground yeah. is fascinating because I didn't know for the longest time Sam Ham wrote a version, and yeah, I'm like, I want to read that, man. That sounds fantastic. Because he's a bit gonzo in a lot of ways. Like a lot of his Batman stuff isn't the Batman that we see on the screen. A lot of that script didn't quite translate. It, it got diluted exactly. and reworked. But he was yeah. the one. If it and and I I, I need to make a video or something about this because I was just thinking about it the other day. Tim Burton and Anton first. Yes, absolutely groundbreaking stuff. One hundred percent. But they never, ever talk about the person who figured out how to make it work. Because without Sam Hamm doing that, even though he got rewritten, the Mm -hmm. core of his story is still there. You know, it's still almost entirely his material. If he hadn't been able to do that because everybody had struggled, that was the key. And yes, he, he worked with Tim Burton. Yes, they they collaborated. But if it hadn't been for Sam Hamm, there wouldn't be Batman 89 and the writers are always the people that get overlooked because the only person who had ever figured out how to make a Batman story work. And the reason why they used his script as a selling point was Tom Mankiewicz and his early eighties Batman script. Yes. It's similar to Superman because he wrote Superman. Yeah. Of course the core, and they didn't give him a direction they wanted to go. And this is long before 
the Miller reinvention. This is long before yeah. Killing Joke, yeah. Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. So of course, but for that time, that's the best damn Batman story anybody had done. And he figured out how to hack it as in terms of a, a narrative structure because yeah. he was a genius writer and deserves the credit for it. And, you know, if, if I have a flag to fly for topic, which I will. Um, but, you know, Sam Hamm was the person who built on that and said, okay, well, we got all this, we can do darker, but how do you do that? Everybody hit a brick wall and he was the person to punch through that. And without that, you could have had Tim Burton and Anton first going crazy all day long, but it would have been for nothing because the material wasn't there on the page. And but that's what um, you had with this is the visuals are, I think, stupidly inventive and at yes. times breathtaking that the MC, MC Escher stairs and things like this. And the fact that she smashes through that window that's not there and the whole teddy bear, the teddy bear thing is well remembered because it's like, who's Sean Connery and teddy bear, but it's actually visually interesting. And there is yes. a scene that, there's only one seat, one little still of it is he tortures someone to death while wearing the teddy bear. Yes. And you don't see that. But that's one also... of the biggest missing things that I want to see yeah. so bad. It yeah. just gets it's so, so, so bizarrely wonderful. But he knows it's, it's absurd. I mean, I was what I was saying to you earlier in the pre show thing. It's just like there is an episode of the Avengers which is called Mr. Teddy Bear. I'm pretty sure that's what it's called, where there is um this woman hires this killer to kill steed and he talks through a ted for a cctv camera and he's talking through a teddy bear that just opens his mouth a little normal sized teddy bear sitting on a desk and i think that's where some of the idea came from you can see some of the dna i think a lot of these tv shows turned into movies especially in the 90s became that thing of what are we going to do we can either go like the adams family and like be subversive with the idea or the brady bunch the both Brady Bunch films I really, really love, um, especially the sequel, which is pretty forgotten um, because they went really subversive and they went, we know there was a TV show. We know how this works. We can update things in the Burton way where we take these things and we make it darker because the campy version won't work now. Or, you know, Sam Hams tried to do a little bit on Batman Returns, then Daniel Waters came in and became like the big I am of Batman Returns because yeah, because the they of threw they they totally threw out Ham's script totally yeah because yeah. on the back of Heavens he was the guy to go to because he did the bleak darkness that and his Batman Two up. script is good oh like, it is it, good. oh I mean it's like it's like yeah there's detective stuff and yeah. it's got penguin and catwoman that's the only linking to and it, yeah. it, it yeah there's some winter scenes it's the only linking stuff but outside of that much more detective driven much darker and in, in yeah. a in a story sense yes um, yes and and tone and tone overall and it is linked it definitely feels like an 89 sequel and it's got totally different visions of things and it's like yeah this would have worked yeah. It has 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 a stronger narrative drive than Returns does, which is most people's biggest criticism when they say, oh, well, I liked 89 better. But what they're actually talking about is 89 has a focus on story drive. The narrative is always driven, whereas Returns is Tim Burton's Tim Burton movie. And I love it for that. And yes, it's my favorite yeah. Batman movie because it takes all these right risks, there. but yeah. it technically is less of a Batman experience. And it's not... Yeah story narrative driven in the way that say, sam like ham put in, in there in 89 it's more like a cure music video but I was, i'll tell you yes. it's in the banshee's music video because yeah exactly because <laughs> yeah. um, like, like, oh, there's a reason that the no, that... i can't believe they let me put them in a movie it's so great 
But it's like there's a reason that Nolan referenced that uh, Batman Returns in Dark Knight Rises. I hate that movie. But there's a reason oh, he referenced that don't film. Me. I know. But there's a reason he referenced Returns because there's some reverence. I mean, you look at even I though Nolan ideas, apparently hates Returns. Oh, whatever. He, he, he dicked all his ideas from the opening of Dark Knight Rises is literally um, License to Kill. Oh God, yes, and then there's there's OHMSS and uh, yeah. Inception. There's the yeah. Club Shoe is in yeah. Dark Knight. The yeah. the Sky Hook is in Dark Knight. I'm sitting there yeah. going, God damn it, are yeah, you kidding? He wants to make a Bond film, but he doesn't know how to work with second units, and that's why his action sucks. But oh. it's like, I mean, oh, he, he in Tenant, he he pushed, he he crashed a seven forty seven into a building. Great, that's just budget. but you don't that's feel it. Skill. You don't no, feel any skill. of it. No. He doesn't I mean, know proper no. narrative drive and. And no. everything's got to be a postmodern deconstruction. It's yes, like I sit in a Nolan movie and I feel like I'm watching somebody with a scalpel and 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 at a microscope and like, oh, well, this goes here and this works like this. And I'm like, I didn't pay to see a two and a half hour, yeah. um, you know, operation. You know, I'm not in, yes, I'm not yeah. in, a, it's, it, it feels like you're in a surgery theater or you're watching some technical, oh, well, this is this and we must examine this. And I'm like, no, that's not, you're it's not, not smart it's because you work. say you're smart. That's the other people have to say you are for the thing. And it's the thing of, it's like you say about postmodern deconstruction. It's like the Avengers is postmodern and not postmodern at the same time. And the fact that it's postmodern because it looks back on the cheeky 60s-ness of the Avengers TV show, but it's so otherworldly. And there's a quote in that article, which is like, I looked at it like the 60s didn't stop. The 60s kept going. And that's how we got mm-hmm. to this world where there's no one on the streets because it's just weird. London is completely unpopulated almost. And it could be because the weather, but we don't know that because so much is cut out of this film. And I think that I don't think the director's cut is going to be the be all end all of like cinema. I don't think it's going to like reinvent stuff, but I think that he had a story to tell and a striking visual style that actually probably would have worked. And I think that like I say, watching it, things I take away from it's like, God, Uber Thurman looked amazing in this. You know, it's like she put her F into it. And there's a scene where mm-hmm. you say all these all these people now, all these people on the internet are like, oh, Mary Sue this or Mary Sue that, or God, they're reinventing it and making the woman like the lead or whatever else. But Emma Peel is better than everything Steed does. She bests him with the sword in like Trub Shores where they have that little fight while he's getting his suit fitted. She's better than he is. She's Plus she's got a doctorate. Yeah, <laughs> she's and, a scientist yeah. and everything else. They're obviously attracted to each other, and there's yeah. that kiss which they never kissed in the original series. It was always that you know that would they weren't. And she is Mrs. Mm. Peel. She had a husband, which you find out a bit more about in the original cut because a husband gets murdered, and that is that the motivation for the reason she's gone evil? Because you're meant to believe that she is. She could potentially be the bad guy in this thing. She could be working with Sean Connery. But then you find out evil Emma, as they call her, who has different coloured eyes, which I found out later on. The the clone or robot Emma has different coloured eyes to the good Emma. Um, there's all these things put in about her motivations and the reason for doing things. And there is a bit of a mystery and there's a bit of a thriller going on before it gets to the the silliness and the weird campness and everything else. But it's really annoying that all these films, we've talked about preservation, we talk about it a lot in different places as well, about original audio going missing and um 
down mixes become a thing or 5.1 or atmos mixes becoming a thing or till revisionism so like aliens when i saw it 70 millimeter didn't look like the blu-ray looks and cameron's new master and you know there are some things that the worst i think is still thief my favorite of all time that criterion version is the worst botched colorization job i've ever seen in my life it is i always go back to colorization theater on the simpsons where they go back to it's like green and blue and teal and it's this weird little gag and that's how it looks on that criterion version it doesn't look like the film um and it doesn't look like the other second disc on the arrow edition as well which is very magenta pushed and very like obviously old video mastery it's somewhere Mm -hmm. in the middle but less digital and i think that okay we've lost a lot of these things look at you know the great cinematic losses like going back to like you'll you'll be the best person to talk about things like Orson Welles stuff going Ambersons, you know, that's the, you know, Ambersons and greed. Went off by and a war the, the, the and came back and it's gone. Yeah. It's gone yeah. forever. And we will never, unless, you know, even going by to the saddest like, film ever made. Yeah. You I mean, it's already like, a terribly sad story, but you know, you see that and you just, yeah. you know, every time you just break inside and, yeah. oh man, it's just, it hurts to even talk about it. You know, but oh, things are God. lost forever. If you look at like people, that burn like um Kubrick who burnt all his negatives and things like that. So burnt all his outtakes or whatever else. He would have nothing Except to do with it. Except the ones in the Warner Vault for two thousand one they won't let out. Yep. It's like and and the ending of Strange Love that seems to exist somewhere. It's like I've read about the pie fight since I was six years old. It was there like can we can we it. please just yeah. you know it's like come on. But now Unfortunately, Leon Vitali died. Yeah, um, two days ago. I mean, maybe yep. as the gatekeeper to that stuff. I think one of my one of the greatest documentaries ever made is one called Stanley Kubrick's Boxes, which two versions um, exist of. I saw it first on Channel Four, which it was made for, which is about going into Stanley Kubrick's boxes. He kept all this stuff, all the screen tests for Clock Orange and all these other bits and bobs and crank letters and all these other things. And there's, um, if you get the HMV exclusive edition of, I think it's called the Cine edition of. Um, Full Metal Jacket. There's mm-hmm. a DVD with it on. I think it's on the American Digipack edition as well. Yes. Um, and it's an exceptional documentary about all this stuff that was kept, but we are going to lose these important things. Even something that's not important, like Event Horizon. I'd love to see the NT17 version of that, but it's gone because it was stored in a salt mine. Look at John Hughes wouldn't let on any of his like, extended versions. Every single John Hughes film he ever made is directed himself was about four hours long. I and still, he cut it all down. the the long version of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, oh. I swear, has got to be a better film because every time I see it, it's it's my favorite of his. Yep. I love it as, as you should, but every time, and I feel this way about all John Hughes movies for the most part, I always feel like there's something missing. And then yes. when I found yep. out that he just shot like crazy yep. and, you know, and then all these scenes were thrown out and then they reworked the ending of Planes, Trains anyway. And I'm like, Oh my God, that it finally makes sense. That's what I always felt like yeah. seeing Avengers 98 and yeah. being like, no, it's not terrible, but there's that. And then I'm like, well, why is, do I think it's not terrible? What is this invisible factor that I'm picking up on? You can, you can find, it's like finding these little echoes yes, of yes, the film yeah. that was. And um, an important point that I, I think I should make about Avengers that I didn't know for the longest time is um, I don't know if you're aware of the Spy Hearts podcast. Uh, they oh, do a yes, lot yes, they of, did an uh, on it, didn't they? yeah, but they also yeah. do a lot of interviews and they wound up doing, I knew they had done one with the director and I'd listened to that, but I didn't I realize they did one. They did an interview with the screenwriter 
uh, Don oh, wow. McPherson. And he talks about his original script was that core story of because yeah. he literally he literally focused on emma peel because he's like i i didn't really know what to write about steed and emma's the more fascinating one and i'm like yeah well yeah but it's about the pair of them and that's why the movie is so much more focused on her but his his original script it was a smaller film it was much darker but it was all about the death of her husband, her yeah. being a grieving widow, and then stuff happens that she gets blamed for and she has to clear her name. And Steed is sort of her handler. And once he figures out whether she's telling the truth or not, he'll either have to help her or kill her. Yeah. And that forms their relationship. That's why she is Mrs. Peel. And originally yeah. the villain was apparently three different characters. And it turned out that the ultimate villain was going to be her dead husband's brother who had always coveted her and there's all this stuff. And the teddy bears, apparently he said that the teddy bears in his original script were part of the, the the villain was always the less loved brother. So he had like a repressed childhood. And so all these things he did, he was reliving and he's saying this stuff. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's where this comes from. That's where this comes from. And so that was his original concept. That's what Jerry Weintraub loved. And it was a gritty dark thing, but Warner brothers kept making him change stuff. And he tried to walk off several times. And finally he was like, if I walk off, they're going to hate me and they're going to get somebody else anyway. And they're going to ruin it. So eventually more and more things got dropped and condensed. And then when they went through different directors too, and at one point for a while, it was going to be Nicholas Meyer directing it. I know that's insane. And it's like, like uh, and then he great. had to, he had to pull out because of of other commitments, things that just didn't, didn't work. But he was just one of many. And they yeah. had Fincher at one point, but Fincher wanted yes. to do it in black and white. And the studio was like, no. And it was before Seven had come out, and it had it been after Seven had come out, they probably would have said, oh probably. yes, you can, yeah. you know, probably wouldn't let him do it in black and white, but at least segments, you know. I think but, they could have done it like congee shoots, shot seven very monochromatically. I think it could have Yeah, been it would have been bleached bypass for sure. Color. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Because after seven, a bunch of people tried it. And when it worked, it worked. And then, of course, you can't replicate that look on home video unless you really take the well, time, which is why all the versions of seven are kind of foobarked. So uh, after the, the laser like, disc and stuff. Um, the but, weird thing about that is like mm-hmm. the whole Fincher thing. I mean, Fincher was going to direct barbed wire at one point. Um, oh yeah, that's right. Rifkin was as well, but then the guy who directed Barbwire was a Fincher guy. He was second unit guy for Fincher on Alien Three, um, or third unit, one or two. And is that weird linking thing between it all and the fact that they were the go-to people in the late nineties? That that's in ninety-five to ninety-seven. Those were the people that would go to because they would make these films that were safe but not safe in a way. And it was yeah, the there was some subversiveness the in there. Yeah, and they didn't mind that here and there, but it that's how Avengers got off the ground because yeah. he was Mind saying Trump he wrote it, it as a he's like it's it's a very French art yeah. movie yeah. with like giallo elements. That's how he wrote it. It was you and, can see and bits of he that was script still, which is really weird because yes, it's like John Connery's in love with Emma Hill, but you don't. They know condensed. Why. Essentially, what he had to do was essentially mash the three villain characters together into the Connery character. So he still has the fascination with Emma Peel. And when Chechik came on, that changed the tone a little bit. And he sort of 
further tweaked it for that. And then that's the movie they went and shot. So it's like Chechik brought in the additional layers of more surrealism and that dreamlike, it's not quite reality. It's distance from it's, it's in the world, but it's not in the world. We don't see any people on the streets of London. You know, it's, they, they, they called it Avengers land. You know, it's yeah, like it's yeah. which makes perfect sense. It's like the Batman films. Gotham City is a real place, but you don't there's no particular time period setting. It's 30s, no, but it's 30, the 80s, but it's not. the 90s, yeah. but it's none. it's none of those. And that that makes perfect sense for this kind of thing. But when you when you look at that story and it's like, oh, well, this is where all these bits came from in the film. And this is the journey they got to. Yeah. But they got sort of chewed up and moved around and manipulated into a different tone and that's the film they shot but then warner brothers came in because they're like once the studio changeover happened classic example of somebody wanting to take out their frustrations on the previous administration on the films that were going to be released because they don't want to hit from the previous lineup no, of the studio they so the they're going to harm their understand. own product by burying it like big trouble in little china or um putting it at the bottom of a double bill or cutting it to ribbons yeah. or all of those and or worse back girling it like Zazdav and that's a whole new Brothers. we are yeah. in a new realm of yeah i mean it used to be they would have to uh put films on the shelf for rights reasons like arsenic and old lace coming out three yeah. years after it was made yeah. because the stage play became a legend on Broadway and it kept going. But this, we're in uncharted territory. But if you look at things like even when MGM went bust, um, you look at Cabin in the Woods and um, Red Dawn remake, they didn't come out until Thor came out because Mm -hmm. Chris Hemsworth was that name at that point where it's like, oh, we can capitalize on this now and people will actually go and see it and we can't afford a loss, so we need a hit. Mm -hmm. So that's what they did. And you could see them burying stuff or do you know what? Recutting it. I can see them taking a film they don't like and burying it because I can see them. They sent Avengers to die. They sent. They went. Do you know what? Get it out. Get it done. Doesn't they matter. they lost their Move summer on. slot. They lost their yeah. their summer title and they just slotted it in there and yeah. that and they dumped it. You know. And we look at it, it's like it's what the year before was. Um, Lethal Weapon Four. Which was like a big hit for them. No, four, four was the same age. It was 98. Same, yeah, 98. So, yeah, yeah, they had that, which was a big hit, but lesser of a hit because it's still an R rated film. That, you know. And it had been so long since three. Yeah. And, and it did, it did, they didn't it. build up. And Die Hard 3 had some of the same problem in 95 because yeah. it had been so long and they also didn't give it a bigger marketing push. Yeah, they still did well, three. nonetheless, yeah. but they were allowing the, the, the franchises to sort of naturally die off. But they left Die Hard 3 alone. So Die Hard 3 mm-hmm. was allowed to breathe and allowed to be its own thing, which I think McTiernan had Except for being cachet. based off of a spec script that almost was Lethal Simon Weapon 4. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's still, I still rate that. I still love that film. Oh, yeah. Like, in a, in a, I think it's, in some cases, one is probably the best american action film ever made it's still flawless but there are times where i like vengeance more than one i think the pacing's really good and i think the script is better i think the script is really nailed in 
I think D'Souza I, has I'm, his moments. I'm good but... with it until the ending because part of me really the loves the. I, I love the low key, ultra dark, sardonic original ending with the with Simon the, Says. The, yeah. Oh man, yeah. that's the, just the spinning. The McLean yeah. Says. Brilliant. Oh man, it's so yeah. so dark and like a completely different movie. But I love the 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 total black dark humor of yeah. it. Um, but, but I got to I got to admit, if if I'm honest. If I'm talking about the Die Hard sequels, Die Hard Two is my favorite See, because I it's like so, it's got that grittiness of yeah. one. Just like Lethal Weapon Two is the only sequel that has the grittiness of one. Uh, you know, McLean's still smoking; yeah. he gets yeah. bloodied in Bruce, which he does in Three. Yeah. But Three is also transitioning into a different kind of movie. Even though Die Hard Two repeats the beats and the structure of Die Hard One, it is a bit self-aware and it knows that it's doing that. And you have Rennie Harlan, you know, going gonzo overboard, which adds a sort of gleeful charm because we don't get that stuff anymore. And when it blows something up, it does, and it goes dark when it needs to, and it is not afraid to go dark when they when they crash the plane. That's the big one. You show people Die Hard Two for the first time today. You could not do that today. Miles O'Brien is dead, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's, it's crazy. It's like, it's one of these things that was cut in the UK for a long time, um, mm-hmm. Die Hard 2, where the only way to get the uncut version was to buy the Laserdisc or the widescreen VHS because the icicle in the eye was is pretty brutal. Yeah, fact, exactly. Talking about lost media again, it's like we will never see the NC-17 version of that film. No, there yeah, there are some versions of a work print floating around in yeah, really not, awful quality. Yeah, same cliffhanger. I've got the cliffhanger. I've got a lot of work prints, but the cliffhanger one, you you don't you won't see that. Harlan dug himself his own grave with Cutfire Island. He just went over the top. And even though he made arguably his best film in Long Kiss Goodnight, again going back to Shane Black, yeah. After that point, he ended up doing direct TV stuff. I mean, I said to yeah. someone on Twitter the other day when they're talking about Twelve Rounds and the horrible tagline it has is the fact that i can remember empire magazine at the time reviewing 12 rounds it was a little tiny thing not a big spread for like a big new release saying hey can you remember when the director of this film once had the biggest budget action film ever which was die hard 2 die hard 2's budget was insane because they yeah. knew they had a hit and they had to cut it down so much for an r rating because it was such a nasty hyper violent like but the money insane. is on the screen you know it's amazing I mean, the effects it, it, that ILM did for that, the matte paintings and the yeah. just the sheer insanity of that. And it's like, still all analog scene. and it's a beautifully yeah. mixed film. You know, it's yeah. a different era, which yeah. adds to the immediacy. That's another reason why I kind of like two more than three, because um, three is 95 and it's already a different sort of feeling. Yes, um, yeah. But there, oh gosh, um, I got to say, you hear all the stuff about Cutthroat Island. So I didn't watch it for years. Same. And then I, I finally I watched it because I got the laser disc and it's yeah. got the rather lovely looking cover art. And oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm going in and I'm and of course, I'm really big on pirate films. So real pirate films. So I'm like, if you're going to do it, family. you got to actually do it, you know, because it's like if I hear one more person talk about Pirates of the Caribbean and I have to literally strap them to a chair and reenact a clockwork orange and make the force them to watch Captain Blood and realize yeah. Yeah. they've been lied to, you know. And then show them the Seahawk, and they're like, "Oh God, that's great!" I did, I didn't know this. And then you show them the Black Pirate, and you, yeah. see, when Douglas Fairbanks does the sword down the sail, and it's real, and they're just like, "Yeah," I'm like, "See, 
see. Um, but yeah, I finally saw Cutthroat Island and I'm like, this is perfectly fine. It I mean, to- tonally, it works pretty well. It's a, it's a little, it's a little flat in places. Um, I don't know if I necessarily would have cast Gina Davis in that part necessarily. When but she does fine. Well, yeah, of course, there's always going to be some degree with that, but yeah. she does fine. Yeah, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. I, and it works. It's got a pretty darn great 5.1 mix for the time period. It's a lot of nice LFE. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. much more impressive than any modern film I can think of. Yes. Um, nice production values out the wazoo. Yeah. Real shit. The money's on the screen. Like I said, the money is yeah. on the screen, and that's what works. But yes. I think that Harlan worked better with Davis in Long Kiss Goodnight because it was more of, it was more of his film. I don't think Harlan with his hyper-violent more modern sensibilities doesn't work in a period piece. And I think that Gene Davis, unless he originated it and there was something, because he was, if I remember correctly, he was kind of a hired gun because it had been developed beforehand. And so he comes Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that makes sense. And he tries to put his own spin on it here and there. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work, but yeah, I I can, I can agree with that. Yeah. And Carlico were going bust anyway. Sorry. They were just like, they were at the end tail of like, Terminator 2 nearly bankrupted them anyway. It's just lucky that it made money because yeah, they, 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 they like, hey, 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 Jim Karen, yeah, just uh, money, could you please. maybe stop spending as much? That's no, insane. okay. They spent so much money on that movie. Mm-hmm. And you look at, I was just a podcast this morning. It was like Jaws went from like a $3 million budget to a $9 million budget, which is insane. But the money is there and it kind of works. And you understand why when you realize that Bruce the Jaws didn't boost the um and they shot uh, it in open water work. and not in a tank never, and, that ever do, and no one has ever done before since yeah. yeah it's stupid but it's like you get where the money goes and you get why these things work but you think of cameron wasn't cameron now terminator 2 was a risk i mean yeah the cgi you didn't know if it'd work and same with jurassic park you know jurassic park stan winston made a lot of stuff and then phil tippett made like the mm-hmm. The, mo- the emotion control stuff and the things, all this, and it's you, you don't see the know heartbreaking footage in the the oh, ILM gorgeous. documentary, yeah. and then he's, and they just cut to Phil, and Phil's like, "Yep, yeah, he's the dinosaur <laughs> supervisor because that's all he's gonna do." Now. But they kept him on, and they made sure that he plugged yeah. in, and that's what made the effects work. Because without that, yeah, it would have been groundbreaking, but it wouldn't have had any life to it. That's why I love that Robert was too. that was the key. And that's yeah. something that is not there in modern effects, even amazing stuff that ILM does. Yeah. It's technically great. The, uh, I forget the, the name they have for the set they built for the Mandalorian with the wraparound. Oh, the, uh, it's had different names. It's called the, um, it's like the, ed- not the edge, but the, the, um, the, uh, some, oh. and it's basically, yeah, yeah. it's a freaking cyclorama is what the it volume. is. Yeah. It's, it's a, yeah. it's a cyclorama where you can put up whatever you want, but, yeah when you see that footage and stuff, I got to admit there's still something in your brain where it's like something's telling you you're, you're, you're it's, it's an, it's, it's a, right. yeah. it's, it's some sort of, it's like when you're watching a magician and you're yeah. watching to, to spot, you know, where, where, where the trick is, where, where's the, the seam and you know, something's not quite real. Yeah, that, yeah at, at least that's point. that's for me. And I admit, you know, I've I've kind of to my own horn. I do have a little bit of a trained eye. You know, you you, well, you can yeah. look for stuff, but even when you can't see stuff, 
if the you know if the framing is slightly off or the way that uh, the the characters are interacting the way people are moving around the way that the, the shot is staged yes. and the way it's blocked which is usually crap um you know that doesn't help but yeah. you know that's that's usually where it's like somehow they don't match up in the right way and there's something in, in your brain going hey this is kind of yeah, weird yeah. yeah something's not quite right whereas had they just gone out in death valley and stood somebody there and they were baking in the sun and sweating like crazy you know they're really in front of a sand dune you know it's it, authentic if you look at like the andor trailer that's pretty much they didn't use the volume at all it was all on set sets were built mm-hmm. and it's actually it looks like it was practical which is what it is but i think the volume works for i i find with the volume instead of green screen so if your option is green screen or volume mm-hmm. because when you've got a character that's clad in reflective material as the mandalorian is you've got to rotate out all those like green reflections which is yeah it, it gives you it gives you more flexibility yeah yeah but it's a tool it's, and the tool should be used it's got to be in the hands of people who are going to take the time to put the effort in and... if you look at like, the practicality of something like the avengers i mean there are some you can tell when the cg wasps turn into real ones when they hit the floor mm-hmm. and there are some it's a very early sort of well late 90s thing so it's still early in cg it's still when it was effect. really expensive and tricky yeah. and but you had, you had to... to mash the two realms of practical and digital together it's the same thing you know, goldeneye was the first bond with cg effects in it it's got some of Derek Metting's absolute all-time most amazing model shots. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's still uh, unbelievable. But if people realize that, they don't realize that all the Brosnan films have model work. Even Dying of the Day has some really freaking brilliant model shots. The best shot in the whole film is when you have the Icarus satellite with the you yep. know, stupid, silly laser beam death ray from space you know it's like yes it's the diamonds are forever satellite on steroids we get it lee tamahori we get it um but the shot when it blows the minefields yes yeah and you have the rose and and they go off i mean it's great that was a model shot and it's brilliant and it's slotted in there perfectly and the sound is really great and it's so brief that you're like man can we just see that shot again (laughs) you know it's like i could watch that like 10 times in a row it's weird to go back to like, I mean, there's two things that struck me this week. I was just on a podcast about, um, I think it's just about video games. And they're talking about, no, it wasn't. Yeah, it's about video games. And they're talking about The Phantom Menace because they're talking about mm-hmm. the games based on it and this, what the world was like in 1999 when it came out. And, you know, the re-releases in 97, the special editions, which, you know, marketing paid for. So Pepsi paid for the budget for that, which paid for the budget for... Uh, Phantom Menace because it was self-financed basically it's an independent film pretty much um, plus it was a tech demo for the prequels <laughs> exactly and that's that's the whole point is like will this work can we take the yeah. Jurassic Park idea and make it work and it's like and this guy said on this podcast well the problem is it's too much CG there's no model work I'm like Phantom Menace has more model work than like more films like 50 films put together it's there's so much model work in the Phantom Menace and all the prequels where they put so much time and effort into it. And it's like Adam Savage from Mythbusters, where he worked at ILM during the prequels and the Matrix films. The Matrix films have got a ton of model work, you know. There's that whole doc in Matrix Revolutions was an actual model set. And it's amazing how much work was put into this stuff. And I can remember at the time when the trailer was the big thing for The Phantom Menace and they were saying, hey, look at that waterfall in Naboo. That's salt pouring. And I knew that back in, you know, 1998 when the first trailer came out. 
because ILM use salt because water you can't really do. So we pour salt and it just mm-hmm. puts some steam coming off it and it looks like a waterfall. And I think that the practical nature of films, so something like The Avengers where it skirts between the two goes very much badly into the point where they rely on CG as a crutch because it should be a bit of both. And there is some practical work in things like the modern Star Wars and things like that. If you look at, you know, I was fervently looking when they were building the sets in England for um, The Force Awakens and they had like the Falcon build. Yeah, they built an actual Falcon to an actual scale. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's like, you've got the budget, you can do these things and you should do Mm -hmm. these things because it should be a mix of CGI supplemented. It should be CGI set extensions or whatever else because you can't always do this. It should be like digital map paintings and things. And that's where these things come in. And it's it's hard to balance. Yeah, there has to be something physically there because the actors can't respond properly uh, if there isn't. There has to be some physical manifestation there. And you should use modern technology to fill yeah. in the gaps. You should, yes. it should expand, you know, because uh, obviously you don't have the, the budget to do the whole thing yourself. But if you did, there's no reason why you shouldn't. Um, right. The, the, um, darn, I forgot my point. <laughs> Um, it's it's having that real sort of nature of like these things it's like if you look at Liam Neeson I hated for a long time because he kept saying he's going to quit acting all the time even though he seems like he's been phoning it in for how long now exactly but he's like I'm I'm going to quit in the 80s because I wasn't getting roles and then I was going to quit in the 90s because I didn't want to work with the CGI stuff and it's like yeah I get that I get acting against a tennis ball on a stick is difficult for eye lines or whatever else we had Amit Best there and they CGI'd over him as Jar Jar and things like this. And you can have that balance of these two things. But the reason is blockbusters have to be blockbusters now. We expect a certain level in blockbusters. I think that's why Bond went the way it did and got a little bit silly. But you look at the difference between the model shots, like you're saying, in the Bond films. Look at the GoldenEye laser, GoldenEye laser where it opens up. So it opens up and the little, almost nacelles. It looks like the ship from um, First Contact. It looks like you know, it, it looks like a Star Trek ship almost. And it comes out and it, it sort of breaks away and it moves out. Compare that to the satellite in Tomorrow Never Dies that looks like the worst CG I've seen. It looks like a video game cutscene. And oh, that, yeah. Yeah. That, but, yeah. You but, know what I mean? It just orbits it, round and it, it has so that cool. sort of. But at least that one. I've never minded it because it's it's a transitional thing. It's just it's for visual reference shot, and yeah, it's, it's very yeah. brief and. In terms of satellites, those can always be very dodgy. But once you've seen Ice Station Zebra, yes, and you understand how bad a yeah. satellite shot that sets up the whole movie, and this is yeah. a roadshow seventy yeah. millimeter film, so it was blown up, and they show it, and it lasts an extremely long time, and it has to crash, it has to do the going into the atmosphere, yeah. and it's the ropiest, cheapest looking, and and I'm just like. Who approved this? Somebody had to say this looks terrible. So once you've seen that, I I, I don't mind um, slightly dodgy satellites. But do you think that someone sat in there with the really bad rear projection, and it is bad, like technically bad, in Doctor No? Sean Connery's not driving that car in Jamaica. He just isn't. You know, in that car chase, he's not driving that car. We know he's not driving that car. It's a process shot. I know that. How many people actually sat there watching it opening night? We're going, oh, that's a really bad rear projection. They didn't know the difference back then. I think we're quite savvy now 
Well, I think and they accepted it yeah, because it was such a common practice. And the focus was not on, oh, that's obviously rear projection. It's dodgy because they didn't have much money and yeah, somebody's on yeah. the side rocking yeah. the sides of the car. The focus is on the performance because what you're paying attention to is Connery's reactions. And he's yeah. selling the hell yes. out of it, yeah. doing the look back, doing yeah. the snarl in the rear view, you know, looking at the rear view mirror. And then he punches over and he starts doing this. And then his hair gets mussed yeah. up and everything. That's what sells it. That plus Peter Hunt cutting the literal hell out of it. So you don't realize that it's the same yeah. shot of them coming around the curve twice. <laughs> Once you see but that, you're like, oh, my God, Peter Hunt was the greatest editor who ever lived. I didn't see I that for years. Lost. Oh, my God. Yeah, all, people don't understand the, the tweaks and the things yeah, he came yeah. up with. I mean, for Dent coming into the cottage, you not having the shot, using yeah. the shot of Connery walking up, flipping it and darkening it. I mean, I, that that should be an editing 101. You know, that's like unbelievable uh, fixed genius. That's what you do when you you're up against it, where you have yes. to think with these things. You're and forced it's like, to be creative. You have to take yeah. risks. But we're also very savvy, and I think that's why both of us sat there watching the Avengers, thinking, "Wait a minute, this isn't right, but it's also right at the same time." It's one of those things where I think you can tell when something had a troubled production or something had something, even without knowing it. I went into the Avengers not knowing it had trouble production. I just knew that people said. The reviews were bad and it was just like yeah. it wasn't very good but even reviews didn't get to you as quick as they do now you know well ahead of like something coming out whether you had it's to read the newspaper yeah <laughs> if, if you did that or you heard it on the radio or whatever else yeah. and you heard like hey this is good or hey this is bad or whatever else and you didn't know necessarily or you just looked when you went to rent a vhs and you're like oh that cover looks really cool or whatever else there's a lot of films i rented just because Oh, it's like um, going back to Martin Campbell. It's like No Escape, I think, is yes. one of his best films. And I Absolutely. saw the cover and I was like, well, that cover looks really good. I'll rent that. And you know what? It's fantastic. You know, I, I watched it because I knew it was the movie that got got him Goldeneye. So I'm yeah. like, I have to go and see this. And I, I started, I'm like, you know, dang, this is really well done. And then I recognize because uh, Terry Rawlings cut it and I start recognizing yeah some similar things to Goldeneye and then similar things to Mask of Zorro as well. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this is where this sort of develops. It's really well made. It's yeah. pretty darn good. And um, yeah, I was I was very pleasantly surprised. He's hit or miss, Campbell. I think he's either yeah. he's Congo or he's No Escape or he's the Mask of Zorro or Legend of Zorro. He's literally one or the other. He's either good or bad. And I think- Or, or there's good ideas and- yeah they're sort of like uh when you see the foreigner you know yes yeah. it should have been two separate films because jackie chan's great in it but you get so invested in the pierce Brosnan material and the internal political yeah. factions and all the stuff uh, backtracking to the past and i'm like that's a great thriller and yeah. then it's like the the it's got a jackie chan movie shoehorned in one of his more modern where he's doing the he grittier do performance because he yeah. can't do his much of the physical stuff which is understandable but it was like two films just jamming together and i'm like can i just watch the other movie I, you got me invested in that and browser's doing great stuff you know so i'm like i i, I kind of don't need the other movie now <laughs> it's a shame because it's like rennie harlan i mean rennie harlan ended up doing well, i did a movie mindhunters which i actually really like the christian slater film 
over there. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw that really once. Yeah, quite good. But he now does like direct to video stuff, mm-hmm. and he's pretty much lost. And it's and that's it's what would have happened to um, had this been you know the what used to be called the journeyman directors. They usually yeah. wound up doing television. Well, nowadays yeah. they yeah. would wind up doing direct to video direct to red box whatever junk Street you've never heard of or whatever else it, it, it's it's the new sort of final fate of of people who don't become the giant names and like try to still have a career yeah foreigners direct mm-hmm. to netflix in the uk so it's literally like this is where these people go now and it's like people want martin campbell to come back to reboot bond again because it worked twice and yeah right casino Royale is a fantastic film i think it's got some issues but i think it's well directed. It's exceptionally well edited. Um, but, but I won't let him do it. Not in a million years. Not now. No, God, no, 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 no. no. I, mean, I mean, you could say, yeah, from the director of Goldeneye, from the director of Casino Royale, that would have some cachet. But I think you'd have to have someone like Stuart Baird come in and edit it to the point where, you know, I think Stuart Baird as a director is actually really good as well. I love U.S. Marshals more. I love Fugitive. And I really like Star Trek Nemesis for all its not very Star Trekiness. Yeah, as, as I was about to say, I, I didn't get on with Nemesis, but it, I, I, I didn't. I thought the problems were more script wise. Yes, not, I think. And and on. I rewatched U.S. Marshals because I found the 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 late release LD, which has a stunning transfer on it. It's even better than oh, the yeah. first DVD. Uh, Great sound, good sound mix too. Yeah. yeah, the the script is it's maybe a little bit more like maybe a, a TV procedural, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, it's it's well done. You know, the, yeah. the sequences are are well put together and mostly all you know practical stuff going on and you know shot well edited well you can see what's going on you can follow the story which does not happen anymore so nope. uh it's it's like it's like a relic from a lost era so uh but yeah these were people who essentially had did paid their dues and trained for years in the various departments and worked on things and actually knew how to put the nuts and bolts together you know that's that's something that people don't have anymore they don't have that background they they get plucked out of somewhere when they get some sort of hot streak or notoriety and a lot of times now they'll get slotted in as the next hired gun on a marvel thing and they're just slotted in there but they they're not really getting much input they they're expected to put some of their um energy into it and then they could use it as pr and say oh this is different because we got so and so but they're a cog in the wheel of the machinery. They're not, you know, yeah. actually calling the shots in a way that actually dictates how the thing is going. Cause they're made by committees. Whereas you would have to have somebody with the, with the, with the risk taking to say, Hey, I'm going to get so-and-so because when you dig into the history, it was not John Glenn's first choice for four year eyes only. No, They approached Terrence young. They approached Peter hunt. Um, I don't know necessarily if they approach Guy Hamilton, but you know, it, it, it's, it's possible, you know, yeah, um, yeah. and that would have been a definite risk taking move at that time because they were not seen as giant bankable names when no, that was no, 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 no. because the industry had changed and you couldn't have the journeyman type directors who did great work when the things worked, but they never got that big name recognition. Yeah, no, but they yeah, were the buddy daddies. They were the old old school, and it's like the whole thing of like when Never Say Never again came out, and it was going up against Octopus. It was like it was Octopus, it wasn't it? Saying yeah, yes. But it's, it's like that was your dad's James Bond. Even though everyone looks back now and think, oh Connery, you know. But it's like he was the old James Bond. 
Roger Moore was and that that was supposed uh, it was supposed to be the point of never say never again that he yeah. was an older character. It's yeah. barely in the film because it was a messy production and they rewrote the whole thing and then didn't finish get to finish the rewrite. It's buried in there. That's what Sean is playing. Yeah. That's why he did it in the first place. That's the best part of the movie is is that stuff. But um, yeah, it, it was that, that it was supposed to be a much more distinct you know this is an older character versus this is the bond of record you know well um, going on to bond i mean mm-hmm. i want to sort of wrap it up a little bit because we've been going on for a very long time so you talked a long time before this podcast started. <laughs> yeah. there's like one question i want to ask you more than anything it's like i'm putting you on the spot a little bit here because i haven't really thought okay. about either but who would you want to see direct the new bond film not like an unknown director, but someone who's working now, whether it's someone, an old guard person or someone who's mm-hmm. new, who would you want to see direct a Bond film? Well, to be perfectly honest, I mean, my gut reaction to that question is me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm just totally sure. honest because I don't know if I have faith enough in anybody, but uh, I'd say the even bigger problem than director is writer. I, yeah, I think yeah. that is such a key thing. And Purvis and Wade seem like nice guys and they come up with great ideas and they get rewritten all the time. So they've never had they've never had a a Bond script that has not been reworked by somebody else. Some of that is, I think, because they come up with great ideas, but don't always aren't always able to follow through, which starts on the world's not enough. But again, we've never had them without other people rewriting them. Um, So I, I, I think the biggest problem is getting a great writer who understands adventure stories because yeah people don't do that anymore um in terms of director I'm, i mean i'm tempted to say ridley scott but you know that's sort of an easy answer and he would put try to put his own spin on it and it, it'd be three hours long at least uh, yeah, well, it I probably think. wouldn't feel very bondian but you no. know I, I don't i don't i don't quite know actually um i'd have to mull it over but I, I don't know if there's anybody who gets the sensibility just right i mean i weirdly would think and it's not just because of my show, like Joseph Kaminsky or someone like that, who literally Top Gun Maverick surprised me in such a way that as a that, big yeah, Tony that's, that's Scott a, fan, yeah, I think that's that a good he, idea. Get, he got the drama, he got the action, he got all the beats there. And I don't think he's afraid to turn it over to a, a third unit, second unit, even though I think he knows the action himself. I think that looking at something like Tron Legacy didn't quite work, but it was nearly there against script. Mm-hmm. And if you think of like Oblivion, again, so visually yep. beautiful, but script. Mm-hmm. And this was the perfect marriage of only the break was all right. Um, but it's like the script and the actual direction went peanut butter jelly. You know, it was just literally like that worked. And I think again, like you say, with a script, I don't know who would who would write a modern bond film yeah. because i don't know what a modern bond film is i don't think yeah. the craig ones necessarily were i think i say it went into the bornean sort of yeah and they didn't and have a direction that, that was that yeah. was the thing and then the whole we want an overarching narrative and da, da, da. so essentially what they did was now that they've sort of said okay that's all done and over with it's like when you read a, a, a comic arc yeah, and it's yeah. a it's a one and done, and it's a sort yeah. of oh, we're going to pretend this is like an Elseworlds or a alternate universe yeah. that's its own particular timeline and thing. I'm like, so are they going to do this every time now? Grant Morrison's Bond is over here, so that's the Daniel Craig Bond. That's Grant Morrison's yeah. Bond that's over here. Yeah. Now we're going to go to Chris Claremont's Bond that will be whoever else, and that that's what we do. And I I kind of get that, but also 
I don't think Eon or Amazon are that stupid that they want to do just five movies. I think that Craig should have made more movies. I think it should have been not quite the, one the every year. The time period was earlier. absurd. The the, yes, the gap crazy. and part of that was legal and you know yeah. they they spend most of their time and and change. red tape and stuff and yeah, yeah I mean the, the, people don't understand how bad that's been and how crazy it gets. But yeah, it it really killed their um their energy for sure. Real Coast not getting Blofeld back ever because of like the whole suit there for years and the fact that Sony owned quite a bit of that Bond stuff through Never Seen Ever Again and the whole thing with that. And once they got it from the McClory estate, but then they actually made the deal. And the only reason why was because MGM still had a tiny piece of Spider Man. So, you know, exactly at least that finally happened and got ironed out. But had that not been the case probably wouldn't happen they've probably been like eh, we still want to hold on to this little card of yours and now we've got what warner brothers universal amazon mgm slash amazon eon productions and it's obviously it's never going to go straight to streaming it might be quite short windows to streaming because obviously amazon want to make content like you say mm-hmm. content is the thing now yeah and i get that i mean like say my first episode like watching prey i would have rather seen that in the cinema because it was i thought it was great and i think that as content for Disney Plus as it was in the UK. Yeah, it looked great on the OLED and Dolby Vision and um, Dolby Atmos. It was fantastic. However, it was made for a screen. It was made for a theater. It had scope and scale. And when you don't allow it to get there, then what was the point? Exactly. And I think that whoever's going to take this on, I think they want some, they're saying like the other week, it has to be someone in their 30s, um, which I always want Dan Stevens or Hugh Dancy I think it'd be great as Bond, um, both of those two. But I don't really care who Bond is because I saw Layer Cake um, and obviously Tomb Raider. I think yeah, I was about to say, I first spotted him in Tomb Raider and I'm like, this guy has great charisma, although they're making him do this terrible voice. Um, And it's not not the actor necessarily, it's the approach of the whole production. And the Bonds have told that. If you look at the fact that Everyone hates Diamonds Are Forever apart from me. I think it's great, but oh, it's a it's, it's a it's a black comedy masterpiece. It's it's a yeah, it's uh, very uh, it, it so is very again. It's he made that thing happen, poking fun at the formula by winking along with the audience. Yeah. It was designed for a 1970s audience yeah. by saying, "Hey, we know nobody went and saw the last one, really, but hey, we got Sean to come back. Come on in." Let's have a fun time. That's Joe what Weintraub it is. Joe Weintraub was given us Vegas because he owned all the Vegas and he allowed them to fill in. You know, it was, that's why Joe Weintraub did Ocean's Eleven remake because he could get those Vegas connections. He had those connections. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a weird film, but it's great. The whole Bambi and Thumper thing, it's stupid, but it's great. And you look at the Connery films going from, like, from Russia with Love, like the pure spy nastiness of from Russia with Love to that film. It's still the same character. And I think you could have that. I think if you do whoever the new Bond is, and 30s is good because if you do one every, let's say two years or three years, I'm fine with that sort of cadence rather than like every year like it was for Connery or every two years or whatever else. They made them too close to each other. And I think that hurt it a little bit. Well, it was was a different different, um, distribution type. So the fact that they could do one after the other, it was, was amazing. Uh, the only one that was rushed was Golden Gun because UA wanted yeah. a Christmas release and and it shows they didn't get to finesse the two different scripts just right. Um I still love it. Still I still 
defend it to the death. I still think it's a masterpiece. But, on my wall, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, you you can you can get that that feeling. That's why it doesn't play well with everybody, right. um, and it makes perfect sense. You know, it, it didn't get the time, and everybody admitted they didn't. Yeah. They had to sort of rush into it. Um, but it, this day and age, two to three years is is about. I think that the right gestation period if you go any if you go anywhere past three years that's way too much because yeah, people forget very quickly in this day and age oh god yeah but i think someone in the 30s if you keep the quality at a reasonable level you can flip between those things of like yeah. do one that's a thriller or do one that's a little bit more not camp but a little bit more self-aware or do something that's a bit more cgi led and a bit more action because Obviously, the Bourne films were in vogue, so therefore they weren't all very yeah. Bourne, especially with um, Quantum of Solace, which I think the opening of that film is still amazing. The car chase it goes hard. I just um, hate the editing. <laughs> if it yeah, didn't have, if it's it didn't, bad. if it didn't have the editing in the, um, oh, what's his name? Um, the, uh, oh man, it's Dan something. He's the Bourne guy. The. Um, is it Dan Bradley or I can't remember. That may be his I name. I know you're talking about, I can't remember his name. Either. Yeah. I, I see his face in my head. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's the, he's the, the, the born guy for all the car chases and yeah. stuff. And it's the same sort of effect. And I'm like, mm, no, that's, you're making it too obviously a lift and that you didn't have a script because the writer's guild was having a strike. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which you get why there's reasons behind yeah it. yeah and people don't dig into that they'll just no. say this is good this is bad and you, you can't do that you have to dig in and poke around and look at the the sinews of how everything came together and where the that's how you find the holes which is avengers 98 product of its time that's yeah. the thing of it. it was the product of its time avengers 98 was a product of its time because the studio upheaval mm-hmm. quantum solids was a product of its time because the um the, the strikes you know it's Daniel Craig was rewriting the script himself. That shouldn't have happened. Him and Mark Foster, was it Mark? Yeah, it was Mark Foster, wasn't it? They were sitting there rewriting the script themselves. That shouldn't have been a thing. That's stupid. But they had to do it because they had to get the film made and had to get it out. And that's yeah. the same with Avengers. They had to get it where they wanted to go and it got cut to pieces and disappeared. And it's really weird. Um, but yeah, we've digressed massively over this very enjoyable chat. Um, and we've talked about everything under the sun for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and we could probably talk for another th- well, six hours or so, probably going on for a million other different topics. But I'll wrap up the podcast here. We didn't get to the news, but there wasn't much news. We did discuss it. We had a little break as well. Yeah. Um, there wasn't much going on anyway, apart from like Pulp Fiction and The Running Man, which I think Paramount will handle that well, especially with original audio. So probably go with Running Man from Cape Light from germany is probably the best shot because it's a really good encode and it has got the original audio as well um pulp fiction uh, i don't like the blu-ray i think it's a bit managed personally but we'll we'll see and again we discussed as well tarantino peaked with jackie brown in 97 um and a bit downhill from there pulp fiction is still good mainly because i think roger avery is better than tarantino personally but that's something that people don't agree with but hey it is my thing <laughs> but yeah hey um but yeah i'm um, spencer thank you for coming on um, oh it's been I, a pleasure Absolutely. i've really enjoyed today it's been fantastic um i think we've we've touched on bits that we want to talk about and then digressed massively but it's all been enjoyable and i i think it's been fantastic thank you oh it's been an absolute pleasure i, I really enjoyed your first couple episodes and i've i've thought about doing a podcast of my own but just yeah it's it's a lot of stuff to put together so i, I yes, know yes. it's it's difficult to get off the ground and then you run into 
tech fun and all kinds of the As things you would expect. Had, yeah. This editing yeah. will take some time. It won't be up like straight away, but I think it's worth it because I think it's been valid and I think it's better have someone to bounce off and having someone else's point of view. I don't think, you know, I've said to you on Twitter before, it's like we don't agree on everything, but at the end of the day, we agree enough to agree on our disagreements in a way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, a dialogue. That's what you're supposed is, to do. Yeah. yeah. It's that's the whole point. It's a case of I don't think people to get this on the internet. It becomes very didactic of like, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong. Well, no. You can not like things. You can not like The Last Jedi or whatever else. That's fine. I don't care. You know, I like it for X, Y reason. You don't like it for X, Y reason. That's fine as well because people aren't meant to like everything. You know, there was, um, there's a line in, um, oh God, what is it? I think it might be going back to John Hughes again. It's like, was it John Hughes? It's like something like, so-and-so didn't write songs that everyone liked they left that to the Beatles is that a Ferris Bueller line or something like that I've just ruined it's like but that's what it is might be. it sounds like familiar everything. I'm trying to place yeah. it yeah people don't like everything you know that's the whole reason you're not meant to like everything not everything is out there for you not everyone will sit in Avengers 98 and go ooh something's there but it's not and buy like three copies like you've got there and I haven't got my copies but it's like uh, I really want to people and it did not go over well it's not <laughs> a very good film that's why yeah. It's not a very good film, but it has some promise. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, thank you again. Rico But thank you for coming on again. It's been great, and I will get this up very soon. It will take a little while to edit and mess around with, but it's been invaluable, and thank you for your contributions. Oh, no problem. It's been an absolute pleasure. Any other time you want to have me on, just, just give me a shout. It's been a joy. I will definitely take you up on that and then put it aside most of the day to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's worth it and I think it's come out really well and hopefully it's going to record as well because I don't think we'll be able to get up for like three hours, 15 minutes, so it's going to take a And be able to be good to take a look at it and you know, yeah. stuff that's come out and put it